Comics Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code Here's the Thing, all one word like you're slurring it, and spin up your own Linux rig for free. And Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and invest in your mind while saving some money. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 426. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hello there, Noah. Good to be back with you after welcome back. a couple of weeks, too, which is like the longest I've ever been away from the big show. Uh, so I'm super happy that all I have to do is stand here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, sir, for filling in. It's such a relief. Thank you very much to Wes and Ryan, too. You guys were great, uh, especially for all the behind-the-scenes stuff that you uh, worked on with Noah on. That was all very awesome. So thank you guys very much. I appreciate that. It's good to be back, though, because we have... A big show this week. Coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, it's our review of Linux Mint 18. Have they fixed those security woes that we heard so much about? Have they implemented something great in the new version? And what about that Mint Y theme? We'll give you our thoughts on the current state of Linux Mint 18 and the Cinnamon desktop. Did you try out the Mate desktop at all? Nope. Or are you a Cinnamon man? Oh, we're doing a deep dive into the Cinnamon version of Mint 18. Then in the news segment, you heard it. It's true. The Ubuntu Linux forms were hacked. Microsoft has dropped the holy Skype for Linux. We'll give you our quick takes on that. And No Maps has hit a dead end, as well as a PSA for Fedora users. And something's up crossover sleeve that could be a game changer. We've got the feedback coming up as well. But before all of that, Noah, do you know what we've got? The picks! That's right. We've got the picks. And check out this frickin' Ford Fusion that runs Linux thanks to a Raspberry Pi. And this bloke here has the setup via HDMI wired into his car's display system with GPS. He's just booting it up to go do, of course, what else? A little war driving. Look at that. It's right there on the nav screen. You can see the Raspberry Pi Linux booting up right there. And then it's a little garbly if you see okay, it. Okay, for anyone else planning on putting a Raspberry Pi in their Ford sync system, I sure, don't know, of course. whatever ones have it. I think the screen is 800 by 400, or 480, sorry. So when the Raspberry Pi first boots up, uh, it's got these overscan things. If you set them all to zero, it's pretty close. Don't go negative with the overscan top and bottom. The screen on my Raspberry Pi stopped booting up when I did that. So I have all zeros here, 800, 400. It's hard to read because and the whole video is perfect, but I'm not about 11 minutes long, about 11 minutes and four seconds to be yeah. exact. And it's super cool to see him do this. And you know the thing that I secretly love about this, and I'm not gonna, I'm, it's not so secret. Um, the sync system is a Microsoft system. Yeah. So well, it was. I don't think the newer ones are. I but I, 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 I don't care. I, I, either, <laughs> either, either. If it may still be because of legacy reasons or depending on it's your age of car or what. Now. It's contaminated. It, I don't know. I just it's it. The brand is tainted, and I love the idea of just washing it clean, washing well, it clean with a little Linux. There, there are a couple of things that stand out to me. One is if if we can get to a point where the car becomes a dumb vessel for. Uh, for inputs and, and basically coming. he's connected the USB and, and the video component and so then w whatever you connect be it a Raspberry Pi or whatever you can fundamentally customize what you want the what you want your vehicle to do and so I think it opens up a huge range of possibilities yeah. whether it's playing Plex for the kids yeah. you know or or navigation or whatever but I think it's neat that he has taken this and like it looks stock it's not it's not some hack together thing because he's using the actual stock screen in the you know in the car in the stock yes, audio system. Yes. 
Yeah, I love that. The other thing that I think is super cool about this, Noah, is this is just the tip of the iceberg. So this guy, of course, he's using it right now. He's going around doing a little war driving right now, uh, which is, you know. You don't get video when you're not in park. Oh, interesting. There's a there's a hack for that. Uh, so he's, but this is, but either way, he's. This is just the beginning, dude. This is just the beginning. Very soon, he will. Uh, you know, very soon, all of us will have cars that uh, have not just this, but many more components that can either be compromised themselves, as we've seen mm -hmm. some of, or like in this case, which is super cool, just replaced. Right? You just do a little rewiring, and you've completely replaced them. And this just the tip of the iceberg. Just the you tip. know what I hate? I hate that the assumption of car manufacturers is that I'm going to watch video while driving. Yes, <laughs> yes you be, are. Dude. I might be. I might be driving, okay? But I've got other people in the car, namely my two kids, that are not driving the motor vehicle, and it'd be really nice to use the entertainment system that's built into the vehicle. It drives me nuts that they, like, why is that not an option? Why isn't there a button that I can say, I'm in the passenger seat, and maybe I have to do, like, constant math problems or something to prove that I'm, I don't know, but, like, just, like, ugh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, I hear have you. A weight, have a weight sensor in the in the passenger. They already have that, actually, for the seatbelt thingy. Yeah. You know, uh... The reality is, too, with tablets and cell phones, if you're really going to want to watch yeah. TV while you, or whatever it is while you drive or yeah. YouTube or whatever, uh, you, could, you could just do it with one of those. You could just do it. So, Noah, something pretty cool has happened over at DigitalOcean this week. Let's mention them real quick. DigitalOcean is our first sponsor here on the Linux Action Show. Use our promo code, here's the thing, all one word, like you're slurring it, to get a $10 credit. Uh, they have posted up, since at least since I've been here, Noah, the official tutorial on how to use the block storage mm -hmm. on DigitalOcean. This is something I have been waiting for. I am so super excited. I have it just, I just begun to have it set up because I only have, uh, it's only available right now in like the NYC data center. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, they tell you, in NYC and SFO2, and pretty much all of my droplets are in SFO1. I only have one droplet in NYC, so I, and it's in production. So I've only just begun to look at it. But it actually turns out that is, in particular, out of all of them, probably the one I needed on the most. So mm -hmm. that's a particular nice advantage, too. Have you had a chance to look at it? Yeah, a little bit. I, I, I haven't had a chance to really play with it. And the other thing is, too, is... I have found other creative solutions to get around the, the, the storage problem, so I have to wait for a time mm. when I'm redoing something, and yeah. then I'll be forced to yeah. figure it out. Yeah, there's that too. But uh, so DigitalOcean is a great platform to get started to host your own Linux rig up on their super great infrastructure. They have 40 gigabit E connections into the hypervisors. They all run on KVM, which is on Linux, and SSDs are the disk everywhere. It doesn't matter which pricing you get, which plan you get. That's what you'll get. Also, something that's super nice about DigitalOcean is we talk a lot about it in a monthly capacity, but really, if you think about it, uh, it's compute on demand that's charged hourly, really. So a $10 credit means you could go run one of their very high-end machines for, a, for a, however long that $10 lasts you and then shut it down. Uh, you could also then, of course, run a rig for two months for free if you use the promo code, here's the thing. I, it, whatever you're looking at, if you want to try setting up the next version of NextCloud, if you want to play around with Mumble, or in my case, if you want to build a QuasiCore, server and something with sync thing running on it, which is exactly where I could use more block storage, DigitalOcean is a great candidate for that. If you're learning, DigitalOcean is a great place to go experiment because you can snapshot and restore when you need to. They have a lot of different distributions to choose from, and they have really great documentation, as well as completely assembled application stacks or just bare machines. It's a great setup over at DigitalOcean.com. Just use the promo code, here's the thing, and grab a data center all over the world. DigitalOcean.com. Thanks, DigitalOcean, and congrats on launching that block storage. I have, it's funny, we were talking about Raspberry Pis uh, on the pre-show. I have a Raspberry Pi that uh, is just come back to me recently that was doing a job that we were testing on. 
And I've been trying to think about what to do with it. And the kids seem to be uh, – was it you I was talking about? The, the kids – I don't remember who I was talking to. No, no, no. It was my buddy John. Uh, our, my kids love, freaking love Nintendo games. Uh, yeah. Classic mm-hmm. Nintendo games. And uh, this week, Nintendo uh, announced that they're relaunching like a little mini NES yep. that comes with mm-hmm. 30 ROMs pre-installed. And, uh, you and know HDMI. What? Yeah, and HDMI with no internet Ooh. connection, but that's probably a good idea. I, that's kind of a neat thing. I wouldn't mind grabbing that, but I know I could accomplish this task with open source. And so that is where our desktop app pick comes. It's recallbox.com, the joy of replaying and re-experiencing. It's a free and open source OS to get you going on a wide selection of console emulators so you can play pretty much anything from NES's, Mega Drive, some of the later 32-bit platforms like PlayStation. It comes with Kodi built in. Recallbox also serves as a media center, so it's a media center and a retro console gaming system so you don't have to sit there and bounce between softwares. It can connect your home network. It can stream videos from any compatible NAS or external hard drive. It's got a pretty straightforward UI where you select the emulator and then it shows you all of the different ROMs available for that. I used to have something like this on a hacked Xbox, actually. And Noah, if you're watching this right here, this is the UI itself. And these you choose the banners and, the, and then that mm-hmm. launches the emulator. And then once you go into there, it brings up like all of the ROMs you have for that particular environment. So it's really easy to use with a remote control environment. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has a really straightforward UI that like our kids, even though they're you know on the younger end, would really have no problem navigating this. The other nice mm-hmm. thing is it displays the artwork for the ROMs. So you just can pick by picture, really. So it really can't get any simpler than this. Recall box... Yeah. The nice thing about stuff like this is it's running, or can run anyway, on hardware that they're already familiar with, right? So Dylan can run it already on his laptop that he's already used to using. He's just running running yep. a different game. That is very true. If you a dedicated machine, I'm sure you could run it on something like a Pi, right? Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Is they, They're they're uh, targeting for the Raspberry Pi, so that way it's a really easy, simple, straightforward approach that would work great for kids or for adults alike. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. They have uh, 30,000 compatible games. It can handle up to four players. It emulates 30 different systems with infinite hours of playability, they say. It can do screenshots. It can do... I still think I'm buying that NES, though. Yeah, maybe. Okay, all right, all right. It can save states, so you can pause it. So some of those old games, you know, you had to, there was no save, like Ghouls right. and Goblins or whatever. Uh, rewind yep. playback is kind of cool. Screenshots, mm-hmm. supports wireless controllers, and you can get online. They say they promise easy updates for the different emulators. It's a nice package. So if you mm-hmm. don't want to, if, if you don't want to buy that uh, NES thing, or you want to play way more systems than that NES thing supports, recallbox.com. And we have a video of it in action in the show notes if you guys want to check that out. Looks pretty cool. All right, spotlight time, Noah. And this guy, it's a little new. It's a little fresh. It's a little raw. In fact, it's a little fresh and so raw that we demoted it from desktop pick. The spotlight. The idea being, Uh-oh. desktop pick is something you could probably you could go get your hands on and feel safe using right now. Spotlight mm-hmm. is more of a, hey guys, there's an open source project out there we think you might like to know about. Uh, mm-hmm. Just go go find out more and uh, keep your eye out for it. And that's where Felony comes in. Felony is a really slick, brand new approach to encrypted chat. It is really nice. In fact, they have a little example here of uh, of uh, of, cha- of uh, chatting. And you can see the UI is very simple. It's a PGP app that's supposed to be easy for everyone. They have Security++ 
to the greatest extreme. As they say, it, you add public keys to your buddies list, and a public key is like a username. You add someone's public key to your buddies list, and it lets you send them messages. How about that? You can encrypt a message, you select a recipient from your buddies list, and then you compose a message. How about that? And you can send those encrypted messages anywhere. You can run it locally, you can run it everywhere. It's all built, probably, I think, around Ruby or something. Uh, so there you go. Felony. And uh, it, it, the thing that really attracts me to anything like this, and I don't actually know if this could, this, for all I know, could never go anywhere. Could be kind of a joke. But I love the idea of something that makes using encryption almost completely invisible, and you're mm -hmm. not, and yet somehow you're not really compromising on the quality of that encryption. The, mm -hmm. the, an example of something kind of that gets near this is uh, N1, Nihilus N1, the mail client that we talked about on mm -hmm. the recent Linux Unplugged is integrating support for Keybase, mm -hmm. so that way you can do PGP encrypted, e GPG encrypted emails to anyone on Keybase, sort of back and forth. Now, you can say what mm -hmm. you want about Keybase, whatever, I happen to like it, but the idea of making GPG encryption a couple of clicks away, and, and, and then the experience being a very modern, nice-looking experience that's cross-platform, that always mm -hmm. gets my attention. That's why Felony sort of showed up on the radar for me. Um, it's not really packaged up. It's not really production quality software. And, any, and any, with anything that you would actually use for serious private communications, you should be waiting for something that's vetted, that has years behind its, under its belt, and maybe even has bounties out there to find flaws in it. That is sort of the criteria I would use for something that's serious like this. But for something that you're just kind of curious about, something that might go somewhere someday, something that might be an up-and-comer, you can check it out. It's called Felony. Go offline. Become invisible. Or if you want to do the opposite of be invisible, become a superstar. Coder Radio has a coding challenge starting next episode. In fact, you can check out last week's, was it last week? No, it was week before last week. Noah was the co-host on Coder Radio. And now in episode 214, we're launching a brand new, brand new coding challenge with actual giveaways, uh, with award points going towards creative solutions, easily understood solutions, performance, general coolness. It's all going to be integrated into the Coder Radio program. And uh, we have a couple different challenges for you. You'll find out more in 2.14. Michael Dominic was, uh, he was sharing with me how System76 and Linux has saved him from Apple and Mac OS X. Yeah, and that episode, that was, I listened to that episode after the fact. It was actually really great. Uh, I found yeah. out about his new rig and all that stuff. So yeah, if you want, if you guys want to know about more about the coding challenge, we'll have the link in the show notes. You can also go to coderadio.reddit.com and it's, uh, it's linked up there. So check it out, and uh, I'm spreading the word because I think that might be something that appeals to you guys. Yeah, and I, you know, I thought that I thought you guys' conversation. I, in fact, for as much as he was kind of talking bat smack about MacBook hardware, you were surprised. Like, hmm, yeah, you didn't really kind of bit your tongue. I was impressed. You didn't. Well, really... Oh yeah. Oh, you have a lot of room to talk. What you have a lot. I listened to the last couple episodes of Coda Radio, Mr. Fisher, because uh -huh. I was trying to, you know, trying to learn. And uh, in there, Mr. Dominic's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably go with uh, with Ubuntu." And what do you say? Are you like, "Oh no, you gotta go with Arch"? That LTS? No, you're like. Yeah, yeah, I can see that it has some legitimate uses in the business, and uh, and then he's like, "Well, what makes you think I'm not going to stick with the LTS for five years?" And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, that'd be an option." I'm like, Man, "Okay." If I said that, if I was like, "I'm going to stick," okay, with all right. You're mad at me when I stick with the distro for like six months. You're like, "Jeez, oh, out of date." Please, okay. So first of all, I think I did say that. You're right. But I also said because he's doing development work, you know, and stuff like that, uh, and using it as a as a dev machine. But I believe I also said it's it yeah. greatly saddens me 
that Ubuntu will be your experience into Linux no, right now. Because your exact words, your exact words were something along the lines of the effect of, uh, I, I just want you to know that there's a better Linux experience out there because I'm never excited anymore when somebody tells me their first experience on Linux is going to be Ubuntu. Yeah, that is what I said. But that's it. That did not seem like the same amount of beratement I would get if I came on the show. That's <laughs> because, young man, you know better. You know better. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. You caught me. But to be fair, I you know like also it's you know he's it's his show. Just like when Alan's talking about uh, how great BSD yeah. is, you know I don't usually say hey, much. Hey, you watch what you say about BSD today. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Defender of the BSD today. Yeah. Oh, you are. You are. I am. Absolutely. Boy, you should have seen the pre-show because I did. I think a fairly good takedown of one of the most common critis- uh, comparisons of BSD and Linux, and that is that uh-huh. BSD is created by a common team and shares the same goals, and documentation is amazing, and it's one big project. Uh, I, did a little, I did a little takedown of that, uh, so if you are a, uh, if you're a patron, you could watch that. It's in the pre-show, but uh, I'll save it, because I know we have to get going on. I don't know what that was. That was. Big. You said it's a big project. I mean, be, like... It- in, in comparison to the scope of Linux, like if if BSD, you know this, if BSD had the same amount of users that Linux had, there would no longer be one big project with community. There would be a bunch of it would diversify. There'd be a bunch of people that are like, no, this is the way we should do it. No, this is the way we. Should You're do gonna it. make me That's- do this. You gonna okay? Here's what I'll just say. I'll just summarize it as this. Uh, the idea. Oh God, I don't want to get in trouble. The idea. <laughs> Alan's gonna give me so much crap. The idea that BSD is superior because it's designed by one team with one vision. Um, implies that there is not a greater open source ecosystem in which BSD not only has to be involved in, but fundamentally relies upon in which to be relevant. The X project, the X11, has to run on BSD. There's many tools like, oh, I don't know, desktop environments that have to run on BSD that mm-hmm. are created in this chaotic, ad hoc, GPL-fueled chaos. And yet somehow BSD still manages, they still work there. Like the whole the whole concept that BSD is superior to Linux because it's created by a singular group of people with a singular mm-hmm. vision falls apart because it has to participate in a wider ecosystem. And last but not least, and I'm sorry I'm off on track right now, but you got me going because this gets to me. The other thing is it fundamentally underplays the role of the distribution. Because what is a distribution? A distribution is a singular project with a singular goal and a vision to curate, curate and put together an operating system. So it, it, what it is, is it's comparing FreeBSD as a released product to Linux as a kernel with stuff added on top. And that it's not an apple to apples comparison. That's apples and oranges. What you have to compare FreeBSD to is something more like Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which has a singular vision, a singular group with great documentation and one particular vision. And that's, what you, OS. Yep. and that's what you have to compare the entire FreeBSD stack to. So this whole myth that FreeBSD is superior because it's one singular thing is false. It has to participate in a wider, greater open source ecosystem where it still experiences that horrible chaos and for the and the distributions essentially do the same exact process and they have to be involved in the wider ecosystem, but they're just not in denial about it. And then last but not least, I don't seem to remember any of us arguing that a monoculture is a technically superior thing and that we should all be advocating a monoculture because the last time I asked OpenSSL, a monoculture is a super bad thing that leads to to leads to things like vulnerabilities like Heartbleed and and uh, non-competitiveness with other products out on the market. So mm-hmm. I don't really, at the end of the day, I don't even really accept the fundamental argument that the monoculture 
is better. That's all the picks for this week. Let's do the news. the news and this episode is brought to you by ting.com what y'all go to last.ting.com that supports the show and gets you a $25 discount off your first ting device or plan now the sales over i guess the uh, cfo came back into the office and shut it shut it down but uh, you got yourself a batch of ting sims like how many sims did you pick up uh, a lot. Uh, I think they were a dollar with free priority shipping. A dollar sim. Now they're only nine bucks now, which is great because Ting has a great setup. It's only pay for what you use mobile. It minutes, messages, megabytes, and that's it. You can grab a sim, and then when you're ready to activate it, it's six dollars for the line, and then just your usage. Super great dashboard. Obviously, the best customer service in the business. There's Noah's pile. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, maybe. I yeah, think that sounds that sounds about right. That's but awesome. They, you got to have a couple on hand in case you got to activate some devices. Yeah. And here's the other thing I need to combat. I need to combat all the people that are like, you know, that you know. Sometimes you run into excuses. I tell somebody about saying, and they'll say, "Well, I would switch, but uh, there's no store here." And I'm, well, you know what? No problem. Let's activate right now. I got a sim for you. Uh, Let's uh, we'll sign you right up. We'll, we'll do it right here. I've done that more than once. Yeah, you so. have. Yeah, you have. <laughs> it's great. Uh, and it's nice, too, because, you know, uh, I can't remember. I, I, we talked about this, maybe your setup before, but I've mentioned it from time to time, too. And you should pick his brain about it. Chase has a really cool security setup with, like, a whole motion detection system and cameras. Mm-hmm. And he's got a SIM ting in there. Boom. Ting, ting SIM in there. Boom. He gets messages whenever something happens or when there's a certain amount of movement. And mm-hmm. could you imagine having to pay even, like, 15, 20, 25, 30 bucks a month that's for something? That's most of them. That, yeah, yeah, that's most of them. There's 20 yeah. bucks a month. Yeah, and I that's know. usually, there's a subscription fee for the for the alarm system and then on top oh, of that yeah. you're paying for the GSM backup. I've yeah. I've done those subscription systems too and they're they're they start at 40 usually around 70 bucks a month just for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so before we get out of here, guess what? Kyra's back and she's got an app pick of the week for us. So take it away, Kyra. Data without giving up your regular routine. All right. I'm Kyra and this is the Ting download. Yo, Kyra. At Ting we're all about saving you money, which is why we become quite fond of Opera Max a standalone application for Android phones. Max reroutes your incoming data through Opera servers, compresses it, and then sends it to your phone. This results in an average of 50% data savings. Launching the app is all that's required to start the optimization process. From now on, select apps will be compressed before reaching you. For instance, videos running on Instagram or YouTube. All right. Check out much you're saving by returning to the app. These stats can be broken down by day or month. For best results, we recommend running the handy scanning process from the settings menu. This action will instantly let you know which installed apps on your smartphone will work with Opera Max. If an app is consuming too much data, you can deny it mobile access from the app management screen. And if you enable notifications, you can get numbers on your current savings. That's neat. While Opera Max doesn't support every app out there, the number of popular apps is quite compelling. Opera Max is free on Google Play for all Android smartphones. If you like this app, like this video, and we'll see you next time. That's actually pretty cool, and I think they're kind of using like a VPN to do it. And that makes Opera the best browser for your porn ever. Route that through their servers, let them look at all that. Uh, that's actually a pretty cool app pick. The other thing, I noticed Google's starting to do that with Chrome. They're offering a service like this. And something that I've recently started taking advantage of is I got YouTube Red as being a Google Music subscriber, which I mm-hmm. guess I accidentally did when they launched. And I use mm-hmm. it from time to time. But the thing I'm actually liking a lot more is it comes with YouTube Red. And mm-hmm. YouTube Red, you just go right in the mobile app, and you can just download YouTube videos right to your local phone storage and watch them offline. 
So just do, it, do that over Wi-Fi. It's really cool. So anyways, last.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. And thanks to you guys for visiting that page. That keeps us going. Even if you just want to go to the blog and read more about Ting, about their uh, fiber internet, or from some of their other app picks, visiting last.ting.com first supports the show. Let's Ting know you visited and gets you that credit or a little bit of money off a device if you decide to pull the trigger. And they have a savings calculator you can go through and go through and just see how much you would save. This first story I want to cover this week because it probably applies to a good amount of our audience. Um, and maybe that's why it's seen so much attention online. Um, but I don't think so. This has gone crazy. There's dozens of videos that are posted every few minutes online. G Plus is freaking out over this Ubuntu Forms hack. And when I, the way I read it, it doesn't seem particularly bad. I guess the numbers are big. That's one reason it's getting detention. Two million user accounts potentially compromised. The online form was the only piece of infrastructure, however. No other Ubuntu websites, repo, or other information was taken. Canonical GEO Jane says that we are unable, we are, I'm sorry, we are able to confirm that there had been exposure of data and we shut down the forums as a, as a precaution. Deeper investigation revealed that there was a known SQL injection vulnerability in the form runner add-on in the forms which had not been patched. A damn format on Noah. The attacker was able to download portions of the user table, which contained usernames, email addresses, and IPs for 2 million users. But Canonical stresses that the attacker was not able to gain access to valid user passwords. But people are talking about this like it's, like it's huge. Uh, but it does, you know, once again, underscore potentially a soft spot in the open source ecosystems. While the forums were offline, Canonical cleaned and rebuilt the servers, and install the latest vBulletin form software and reset all the system and database passwords. Any thoughts, Noel? Um, not so much, except for that the any of the services that I use, and we'll talk a little bit more of this, about this in the feedback segment, there are fundamental things that I have to use on a day-to-day -day basis, and for those things, I, I have a password that I use or, or, or an iteration on a password scheme that I use. For things like forms that I'm visiting when I have a problem, or if I, if I you know, if I'm, I'm trying to look for something specific, for those kinds of things, man, is it ever important to have just a one-off password? Because it is a little bit more trouble, even if you're using something like KeePassX, where you have to go into a separate piece of software to look up the, the password to sign into that 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 uh, that account. But at the same time, if you're not, if it's not something you're using on a daily basis, just make it a one-off password. I have one-off passwords for Ubuntu forms, so I care not at all if somebody gets my Ubuntu form password or or hacks it. Knock yourself out. Post is currently you kind of sneaky. Yeah, you sneaky mentioned in there. KeePass X. Um, I, I that's not uh, that wasn't a mistake. You actually. So if last time, last time on Noah, you were using fi a, fi a Firefox-based password manager. Now yes. I get back into town and I discover you switched over to KeePass X. What's going on there? Kind of a little bit. So I, it's kind of a hybrid approach. The problem with Firefox, the problem with the Firefox manager is it doesn't do multiple accounts terribly well. And so if I have, you know, if I have, uh, you know, if I have a single site where I have five or seven or 10 different accounts, what it tries to do is you type the username in and then it tries to match the password up for a specific URL. Well, depending yeah. on how you enter into that login form, it if the URL is is different enough, then Firefox doesn't recognize it. Which happens a surprising amount of time, especially with forums and stuff like that. Now, FlashPass yeah. used to kind of suck at this, and one of the things that I did to get around it was I would just fix the URL when I'm saving the password. 
But so what I did with LastPass was I would open LastPass up and click on the account I was looking for and use that as yeah. my navigation yeah, as well true. as my yeah, password. Yeah. That doesn't work terribly well in Firefox. And the other thing I don't like about Firefox, and this is a small thing, but once you have decrypted your 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 key vault with your master password list, anyone that logs into Firefox can go in, can just click on options and click view password, and it just shows all of your passwords in plain text. Um, and so, uh, so th there, there's a couple things I didn't like, and so for for that reason, I like I like KeyPassX, and basically, I'm using OwnCloud to sync the oh. uh, to sync that the password that password file back and forth, and that seems to be working fine on my desktop. And as long as it's just for one-off accounts, it's not a big deal. I'm still using Firefox for any of the stuff that I use mm. on like a daily basis. That Jeez. stuff, two different. Firefox. Well, I guess in some ways maybe you're more secure by using two different password managers, but boy, that sounds like a pain in the butt. It's not it's not a security thing as much as it's well, I know. I know if it's something I use on a daily basis, it's in Firefox. And if it's not, if it's if it doesn't automatically populate, I gotta go to KeyPass to look at it. So up. what happens if you accidentally leave KeyPass running on two computers? Nothing. Uh, nothing. And I mean, it they don't the like autosave the database or anything like that where they'd overwrite each other. Well, no, in cool. fact, it, it actually it turns yellow at the top and says this key uh, oh. key database has been modified. Do you want to save? And you can you know you click yes. But oh. I never leave it running, right? Because if you leave it running, you're logged in, and somebody could. It's the same problem as Firefox. The thing I like about KeyPass is I can open it up, get the password I need, then close it back up and leave my browser still open mm -hmm. and signed in yeah, and everything's working, but I, all yeah. those passwords aren't exposed to anyone that comes by the machine. So I was pretty impressed with the amount of hype that Ubuntu Forum hacks got. I mean, people were just really falling all over themselves to report on it. Uh, it was really something. Uh, it didn't seem to be, from my takeaway, uh, that surprising. V-Bulletin with an old add-on, pretty low-hanging fruit, uh, and it sounded pretty isolated. But I, you know, I, that's just my quick take on it. There's another story that I was really surprised got a lot of attention. And that, I don't know about you, was the new version of Skype for Linux and Chromebooks. A lot of reporting on this one, uh, and it's uh, apparently going to be coming out in stages of progress. They have rebuilt, rebuilt Skype, back-end mm -hmm. WebRTC, front-end Electron-based, and they claim it's going to be a first-class citizen eventually. Right now, only audio support, no video calls are available. Can't call old Skype clients. Old Skype clients can't call it. So it's kind of off on a land of its own in that regard, which might leave some Linux users in a lurch that are trying to communicate with each other. I thought about honestly installing it and calling you up and seeing if you sounded any different with it, which mm -hmm. maybe we'll mm -hmm. try at some point. Sure. But I, I'm not getting all the love. Until this is a complete product, it doesn't seem to be that exciting to me. It... it WebRTC based and you're not doing video? All right, wake me up when you manage to get video working. Uh, otherwise, it seems to be a non-competitive product that, that can't even match the feature set of the old version. Not to mention, right. none of the least, it's now a web application instead of a desktop native application. Right. I can live with Electron, no problem. That's really not a big issue to me. Um, What? Oh, okay. I thought you were gonna say more. No, no, I, I, yeah, I didn't know. No, I agree. I can live with. I can live. I can live with Electron instead, rather than a native application. What I don't like is uh, is the fact that it seems like they're going the Electron route to avoid having to commit any skin in the game to an actual native Linux app. Mm, and I don't know. Visual Studio Visual Studio Code Visual Studio Code actually seems to be a legitimate product that they're continuing to work on, and that's an mm -hmm. Electron app too. So they've done, you know, they've shown that they have some success shipping Electron apps. And it, one other thing, one other thing, I'm not thrilled that it is. Whenever it's something that's involving lo working with my local video and audio devices, I prefer as native to the metal as possible. Um, right. However, you gotta you gotta admit. 
Skype, even with a native desktop application, is totally dependent on the internet and the web, quote unquote. So it's essentially, right. for all intents and purposes, a web app. It requires their proprietary closed network to be online. It requires mm -hmm. that you authenticate to their proprietary network with their own username and password system. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, it is a web application already. And if that means now actually just admitting that and shipping an Electron version means they can actually ship something, that'll be impressive. What I don't understand and what I think is likely the case is what's their real motivation? I think likely the case, the real motivation is Chromebooks because Chromebooks are legitimately a phenomenon in the education space and a lot of different right. areas and they want Skype to be available in those places. So I think they're playing the PR game, claiming once again that Microsoft loves Linux when in reality their motivation is shipping a Chromebook app and Linux getting support for that. Yeah. That's on top of it. And because yeah, it's yeah. using kind of Google's technologies and it's using Electron, they probably only have a small handful of people at Microsoft actually working on it that actually know what they're doing, and it has to go through the rest of the process through a company and a culture that doesn't understand this stuff. So yep. I'm never going to be that impressed by it, I suspect. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not. And in fact, we got we got some criticism, uh, again, not to constantly be referencing the feedback segment. We got some feedback coming in that, that kind of criticizes us for taking that stance. But the reality is, um, that I, I, until, like I said, until they actually have some skin in the game, I'm not I'm not too excited. All that said, I'll be perfectly happy and totally content, and I'll give Microsoft the thumbs up if we can get 16 by 9 video with the traditional yeah. high quality Skype yep. audio, yep. and I, it's a native Linux app. I don't care if it's Electron. Yeah, I don't care if I'd it's base. I don't care what it is as long as it works. I would use it in the way that I use Hangouts which is I'm going to use it until a more competitive open source solution comes along. And right. part of that solution has to also provide a network of people that are willing to use it and a standard way to communicate with them on, and a standard vernacular to communicate how to connect. And when, when, when there's an open source something that meets all of those checkboxes, which I would happily switch to. It doesn't have to be Skype or Hangouts. And when Microsoft ships something, if it meets those things you just said, yeah, I'd give it a look. Yeah. All right. Next story is a little bit of a bummer. I feel bad for the GNOME Maps folks because I, I just go figure. I just started using the heck out of GNOME Maps on the road trip. I, I didn't use it exclusively, but uh, I had the Apollo there with Fedora 24. And, you know, again, a native application. It's nice to have something running like, uh, right there on my machine. And it seems like GNOME Maps, though, GNOME Maps hit a bit, of, a bit of a dead end in their deal with MapQuest. If you look at the screenshot here, it's just tiles of MapQuest developer agreement information. Uh, it's kind of a bummer. The application's tile provider, and I actually made the mistake of thinking, just I assumed it was OpenStreetMaps, uh, but no, it was MapQuest. And the, the tile provider has amended its usage policy and discontinued direct tile access. Now, GNOME developers could pay for it to keep using the service or find a new one. Uh, and they also are looking into OpenMap. They said, I'll need some help with contacting OpenStreetMap. Uh, and with finding a solution to our tile issue, I think we're going to need our own tiles.gnome.org for a map application platform to be feasible. That's the chief developer of maps. Now, OpenStreetMaps does offer its own tile servers, but it's not clear whether their use in GNOME maps would go against the terms of service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy, that is a real bummer, though. And because of the breakage, Ubuntu GNOME has already announced that they'll be dropping maps from the desktop for the next release. You know, i got to be honest with you, man. Why is it that we are so concerned about having uh, maps on a on a on a computer? I 
Yeah, I just, I, I, if it's not using an open source data set, I kind of agree because then it's like kind of what's the point if you're just if it's just a, a Linux desktop yeah. app to a proprietary backend, not right. as compelling. Uh, that said, I did start using No Maps primarily because it's very fast. And it's nice to have something where I could have my web browser, I snap my web browser to one side of the screen, and I snap no maps to the other side of the screen, and I can search for points of interest in a, in one workspace and map them in another and not have to be switching tabs and or searching in, in Google Maps or whatever. So for me, I, I started using it out of sort of uh, separating off my work day, my work. You know, like the, I do my searching for location here and I and I do my, my Googling for information over here about parking and whatnot. And I, I, I appreciated the speed too when um, sometimes web apps over a MiFi connection seem a little laggy. And so this felt fairly responsive as the tiles loaded. I also dug the idea that I, at the time, mistakenly made the assumption it was using OpenStreetMaps and thought it was cool that I was using an open source desktop running an open source application to access an open mapping system. However, that is not the case. Maybe it will be in the future after this mistake. But I definitely learned a hard lesson about not hosting your own infrastructure because it's super embarrassing when you launch that Maps application and it just tiles of MapQuest developer agreement all over. As of July 11, 2016, direct tile access has been discontinued. Nice guys, real classy. How about a watermark or something, and then provide the tiles? Uh, they want that money, money probably for the bandwidth. Anyways, you might be right. Maybe it'll be if they can't find another solution. Maybe it'll be the end of no maps, and you'll have your way. You'll be happy. Well, yeah, I don't really care one way or the other. I just don't see the appeal. I just not. I mean, the amount of times I've really needed to, I, whatever. It is what it is. But it's it, not for me. Okay. Okay. You know what isn't for me anymore? Fedora twenty four. I had to wipe oh, it off. Boy. I had to get rid of it. I had oh to get rid boy. of it. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're going to talk about this now. So uh, here's here's a little problem Chris has. I'm going to pull up a photo here that I took uh, of my laptop. I sent this to Noah, so you've seen this photo. And uh, I thought at first my drive had failed because I got an error message on my Apollo uh, when I, I lifted the lid from sleep. For a brief moment, I saw my GNOME desktop, and then it dropped to a text console with an error message of reboot and select proper boot device or insert a boot media in the selected boot device and press any key. I power off the laptop, I power it back on, just goes to that error message after a little cursor, cursor flashing. Oh, very sad, very sad. I didn't quite know, I don't quite know what caused this particular problem, but I'll tell you where it started. It started on my road trip where I brought my Fedora 24 install as sort of my ah, daily driver. And, um, as any reasonable person does, I stayed up to date with all of the updates over the MiFi connection because that's worth spending the data on. And when I received the kernel 4.6 update, my system would no longer boot. I could work around that by choosing kernel 4.5 in the grub menu, and then it would continue to boot. And essentially, because I didn't have any NVIDIA drivers or anything like that, there was no real like major repercussions of running something older than the latest installed kernel. And this workaround worked for a while, and I thought there would be a quick fix. I thought we'd have a patch, and a couple of days went by. Eventually, I got back to work. It still hadn't been fixed. I got on Linux Unplugged, and I mentioned, hey, guys, I'm having this weird problem with my Apollo, where now Fedora 24 doesn't boot whenever I choose the 4.6 kernel. This is before, by the way, I got that won't boot error message. Mm -hmm. And pretty quickly, I started hearing from the audience with different types of machines, with one common thread being all Skylake systems. Mm -hmm. We're having this issue after the latest uh, Fedora kernel update. 
mm-hmm. to kernel 4.6. And so uh, a few days after that passed, and I found this blog post by Adam W., um, and he talks about the uh, current issue with Skylake systems on Fedora after the kernel 4.6 update. So this is something the project is now aware of and working on. Uh, the problem appears when you install the latest kernel update and a new kernel fails to boot very early in the process. The story behind this bug is that it's not actually a kernel bug at all, but it is a bug in the microcode underscore control package. This package is which contains both processor microcode updates and loaders for such updates for Intel processors. And it goes on in the post, which you guys can find in the show notes, about working around this and sort of more information about the microcode issue. So that was, that was really my main issue, and I thought, well, I can, can just continue to boot off the 4.5 kernel until they probably eventually come up with a fix. So uh, I, I did that until I woke from sleep about a day later, and I got that failed to boot, and I could never load Fedora after that again. And I, don't, and I hadn't really done any recent updates as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not really sure what happened. I put it to sleep. About 30 minutes later, I woke it up. Still had plenty of battery life. In fact, it had so much battery life that I was able to reinstall the next OS while on battery um, with no issues. So, and, and, and the new OS, I believe, is running kernel 4.6.4 or 4.6.3. I'm not sure. Um, let's see. Uh, 4.6.4. And it's not having this boot issue. And what, what, what distro set? Arch. Oh, okay. Well, and also uh, Mint, but Mint isn't on 4.6. So... Uh, what happened was, is sort of like exactly I said was going to happen. And that's sort of why I'm upset about this particular problem. Uh, what was it on May 22nd? I, I have it linked in the show notes. Uh, it was episode 418 of the Linux Action Show when Fedora announced it was going to be a couple of weeks late. And that same week, uh, Linus released kernel 4.6. And 4.6, for those of you who don't remember from a few weeks ago, was notable because Linus himself came out and said, this is a particularly good one. It's nice and stable. It's a great kernel. This is one that I'm going to call out as one of our better kernels. And I said at the time, I said, boy, you know, Fedora, being sort of a cutting edge, shipping the best open source distro, remember, this is the distro that shipped a Pulse Audio volume control applet before it even worked. It just slid and didn't actually do anything, but it was important to ship early code. They were pausing their project at a perfect time to say, well, maybe we should look at kernel 4.6. There's precedent, by the way, to have them do this. So it's not like this is totally unheard of. And at the time I argued, see, the great thing about them pausing and just shipping with that great kernel is that when Fedora users installed Fedora 24, they wouldn't have to worry one or two weeks later about a kernel update coming along and hosing their system. Exactly what I said. That's exactly what's happened. I don't understand why they have this hard set mentality about these super fixed rules when software itself is not fixed and static like that. And they could have tested the kernel. They could have ran into this problem on their own before they shipped it to thousands of users who now have Mm -hmm. non-booting laptops or desktops. This Mm. could have been avoided if they just would have shipped with something a little bit newer and they just would have waited another week or two. and I don't, and I, and I don't understand like why that's so hard. On why for you, for you don't see that as an obvious thing. Like not, not at all. Because it seems like that's a never-ending battle. So you delay a couple of weeks or whatever it is, and you start working on four point six. Then four point seven is right around the. I mean, when do you draw that line? I mean, well, at first some of point, all, first of all, the, the next stable kernel wouldn't be just around the corner. And second of all, 
this is a particular special kernel that the creator of the kernel himself called out as one of the great ones. Now, if you're spotlighting great open source technology for DevOps and SysOps to deploy in the Fedora workstation or in the Fedora cloud, and by the way, this included important cloud server technologies, cloud technologies that make make the distribution more competitive on a VPS and on servers. So, I mean, there was compelling reason to ship what, it. What did the Fedora user say when we, fir- when we first decided we were going to review Fedora 24? Did I not say numerous times, I think even in the review episode, for me personally, I'm not going to install it for a couple of weeks, maybe even a month afterwards, because it, having used Fedora since version one, all 23 of them after that, there's always some little issue that comes out in the first couple of weeks, and then they get it solved in about a month in, a month and a half in. It's totally solid. And if All right, you well, wait that little bit, let them sort that out. Okay, hold that thought. And let me let me finish the last thought. Here would be my here would be my bar, Noah. Just for how how do you decide when to actually pause and and and, and freeze for a little yeah, while yeah, longer yeah, and yeah. work it in and test it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I would say the line's pretty easy. If you are planning to ship a core OS component like your kernel. Mm-hmm. that affects so many things about the system. If right. you're planning to ship that within one to two weeks after release, I would say it's worth not releasing until you're ready That's to fair. just do it as the core. That's the line. Because you, what you're asking is your new user base, one or two weeks after their install, to potentially nuke their entire system, which actually mm-hmm. did happen in my case. Now, to your next point about how all long-term Fedora users know that they should wait a couple of weeks or maybe even wait till Corora ships before they should actually run Fedora. I acknowledge that I is... That huh? I don't think I went quite that far, but... I, no, yeah, that, I would add that, though. I mean, like, really? Oh, okay. Well, oh, where do you draw the line, Noah? What arbitrary date do you decide? How do about you know month. when you uh, should make the month. cut? About a month. I w- yeah, it is. It is an arbitrary line, but about a month. So, I about so a month. what you're saying... Mm-hmm. fundamentally, is it is acceptable for a distribution to put you through enough shit over the years that you got whipped so hard that you learned to back off and wait, and you had to suss out how long you should wait based on how many times you got burned by things that have failed. And for you, that's an acceptable way for one of the most watched distributions to ship and deliver software. What I'm saying is that over the years, what I have found is that distributions that ship things that are very, very new and very, very bleeding edge, oftentimes, in my experience, run into some issues. And so what I like to do is wait a little bit until those issues get worked out, and then I'm okay to jump on board. Now, I if I was the... If I was the kind of person that that was that had enough time to fill out bug reports and stuff like that, it would probably be a valuable contribution for me to use that stuff and say, "Oh, Skype doesn't install and GNS three didn't install." It was just a couple. Of things I think that happened I think you were. I think that is a totally that is that is just a sensible thing to say. But I think it also is acknowledging that they are doing amateur work and that their pro- their final product isn't good enough. And I think too, I think folks like OpenSUSE and Arch would argue with you, and now Solus and others, would argue with you that you can ship modern current software and not blow up the distro on a repeated cycle. I mean, if you listen to Linux Unplugged, you'll hear Richard, you'll hear Richard Brown talk mm-hmm. about how SUSE does the testing so that way they can deliver continuous software updates, and they're not out there blowing up people's install every single but week. You can't possibly tell me that there's no distro out there that can test all the different various pieces of software with all the new various pieces of software. So essentially True. what you have, so what you have is you have two choices. Either we just, we just kind of have a hodgepodge, which is the rolling distro, which is everyone throws it out. We deal with issues as they come up, or we make an artificial line mm. in the sand and say, this is the stopping point. No. Everyone get to this point, And then we're going to release off every, we'll put whatever software versions, they, the chips fall where they lie. And then we'll deal with all those softwares. I, and then for the next mm. five months, at least, I don't have to worry about that changing. I think that's a bit of a straw man because here's why. 
uh, it's not an all or nothing proposition. So you you can have uh, you can have automated testing that works significantly well. I mean, uh, if you look at the LTS uh, sixteen oh four releases before the final version, mm-hmm. those particular releases were actually of great quality. The shipped yeah, version was less quality. Yeah, I agree. I and agree. We, I agree. And we right gave about the night before. Yeah. And we evaluated. You know, when they shipped it, that we discussed what they shipped and how it works. Yep. And the thing about that is, is you you can't hold one distro to one bar and another distro to a totally different bar because right, well yeah. they just can't quite do it. That's not that's not reasonable. And well, and here's why well let me finish hold on. Here's why I think you kinda had a straw man there. Because I'm not asking for them to come up with some great solution. It's the choices were actually really straightforward. Is there a brand new version of the kernel that we're gonna ship within a couple of weeks? If the answer mm-hmm. is yes, this is a binary decision. If answer yes, then we should just delay by one more week and test. And they could test it potentially Hopefully, as responsible distribution maintainers, they would sh- they would test it on semi-modern hardware and older hardware, and they would discover this particular flaw. I'm not asking for them to be some great arbitrators of what's solid, what's safe, and what's not. I'm simply looking at what's best for our user base, what major change do we see coming down the pipe, and how could we make that better for our end users? That's that's the only question that I'm asking for them to say, uh, to, to, to raise, and here's the fundamental issue, Noah. Some mm-hmm. dumb podcaster in Arlington, Washington, thought of that back on May 22nd and said, hey, what about this? And if I, mm-hmm. some stupid guy sitting here in front of a green screen, could think of something so stupid and basic as that, why aren't they thinking of it? It's amateur because, work. Because I, no, I think I, I think you're just approaching things differently. And, and I, I disagree with your fundamental premise that you can't hold different distributions to different bars. I think you absolutely can, and I think you absolutely should. I think that fundamentally, Fedora ships a different product than Canonical ships with Ubuntu. And I think that because of that, you hold them to two different bars. I I was furious. and I. So you're saying that Fedora ships a lower quality product and Canonical no, ships a higher quality no, product, and so they shouldn't product. be judged by the no, same metrics? No, no, different. Different products, not okay. lower, higher or lower quality. Different. Oh, they're just they're in different categories of the market, essentially. Well, yeah. so Fedora is shipping towards a I want Power to user. try all the newest stuff before we know if it works or not. That's why they should include kernel 4.6, right? Go ahead. I think well to a point right but yeah, it, it, yeah. until you get to rolling the, again you have to draw that line somewhere now in hindsight yes I agree if you had we look back we say they have a bunch of problems with 4.6 and it happens to be on the most commonly sold processor to date if you go out and pass by and buy any computer it's going to probably have Skylake in it right or any of the system 76 or any Lenovo which I happen to know is who Red Hat is buying those laptops from right now so that means that all of their laptops that were bought in 2016 came with Skylake processors yes I agree if you have a problem with 4.6 Probably should have figured that out. All right, I admit that. Okay, but but I think I think that fundamentally, I don't think there's a problem if you're not going to have a rolling release to draw an arbitrary line and say this is the time that we're going to stop and see what works and see what doesn't work and we'll hash those out. And I think the appropriate way to use that software in production is to wait a month and let all the people that are okay with their system bog it up a little bit, sort that out, and then we get all the problems solved, and then we install. And we that have just makes first of all that makes the life cycle of Fedora kind of. Not that great. And and, and and my last point there is, what's the point? What is the, the point? point? If, if they're going to be a, a release-based distro that tests mm-hmm. this stuff and does betas, mm-hmm. does release candidates and ships code, and still manages at the end of the day to screw the pooch, what's the point? And I guess I'll just – and here's why I'm upset, and we can move on because we're t- spending way too much time on this because we're here to talk about okay. Mint today. But – 
I'm bummed because I, as a, I've always done this for as long as I've used Linux, maybe it's because there's multiple choice, I always fantasize about my plan B distro. Which one am I going to hop to if my current distro goes to hell? And I've always mm -hmm. thought it'd be super nice, especially with universal package installers, um, if maybe one day I would just end up on a Fedora install that I use DNF to upgrade between releases, maybe a month after a, a release, I don't know, and I felt really happy there. And the problem is... In my estimation, this disqualifies them as a plan B backup for me. I I tried to make Fedora 24 work on that Apollo, and it just, I don't even know why it, I mean, I, maybe it's a Skylake issue. I have, in the show notes, I have one, two, three, four, five different references to Skylake issues under Linux. Skylake seems to be a major problem for Linux, and I won't even get into the P-State issues that Skylake yeah. has on laptops. So maybe it's not all blame on Fedora here, but I, I ha I've been burned now because no other distro has I've had these kind of problems with, and I just feel like it just it's not for me, which is too bad because I really I, I really I really wanted it to be my next distro. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm I'm okay with that as long as you as long as you acknowledge that it's like when you were telling Michael Dominic that you that you know there's 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 a different way. I'm just telling you. A month into Fedora, there is a different experience to be had. Yeah, on it's Fedora. called Corora, and I, I think that's a fine distribution. Yeah, okay. I mean, really, I mean, what am I waiting for? Am I waiting for the product to get what it should have been when it shipped? For the problems that the, that that weren't discovered in testing. And how do I arbitrarily on. know when that moment is? How do I know that this time it's going to be a month in? Well, you start doing Google searches for the software you run, and nobody seems to have problems. Nobody with that. talks about Fedora good. online, though, so there, that doesn't get you anything. Uh -huh. Well, now, even their subreddit's a snooze fest. You can hardly find anybody. I've never, I've never posted or browsed their, their, it took their like subreddit. It took like five or six days for the Skylake issue for anybody to really be talking about it. And if this was an Ubuntu release that killed Skylake-based machines, people, I mean, with all those issues, we heard about the Skylake video flashing on 16.04. That was a mm. major discussion within the day of, the day of the release. Uh, right, and I hold I hold Ubuntu to a different standard because I think that I think that when you have an LTS that releases on day one, I think it should work perfectly on day one, zero equivocations. And I think if you can't do that, it defeats the entire purpose of having an LTS. I think you and I would be on the same page if they took if they took Fedora Workstation out of the title and they called it Fedora Beta. Then I yes. would agree with you. Yes, I. You know what? That I agree with. And not only do I agree with that, I definitely think there's a huge market. And please, please, Red Hat, if anyone from Red Hat sees this, please, 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 please come up with a product that is designed for business and specifically geared toward an answer to Canonical's LTS. Because if they did that, especially if it had a release cycle longer than six months, I swear to God, I would switch everyone I come to in contact with over to whatever that product is. And you but don't want it to be CentOS or I guess. No, because that's that that's a way little too, too far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're not you're not going to use CentOS to set up your Plex servers. Well you might, but well it's Plex server fine, but installing VLC media player is a joke. And the problem is when you go to get support or ask people about it, they go, why would you be installing VLC on a server distro? I just, I don't want to deal with that. I, mm -hmm. just, I want a desktop distro that has a long support cycle that is backed by a large company. If I had something like that from Red Hat, I'd switch like that. And mm -hmm. everyone that I know, I'd switch to like that. Probably and I think by Red Hat too is a particular important part because that would give it a lot of market legitimacy in your particular field too. So. Yeah, I agree that the Fedora workstation implies that you could use it on a workstation, and I would not. And the ish, yeah, and Fedora on a workstation. Oh yeah, I, I like if Michael Dominic, you know, when he ran, like he, yeah. Anyways, yeah. We, we go. That's on. a great. Yeah, that's a great point. So maybe this will be a solution for you, Noah. This might just be what you want. It's backed by a large company. It has long-term support, and now you can run even more applications on Chrome OS. Yeah, crossover 
for Android is now running on Chromebooks, which means via the magic of Wine and the hard work over the crossover Office team, you can run Windows applications on Chromebooks legitimately. Uh, they show examples of it here in a video that's embedded over at the Pharonix article. This is this is uh, not ready to ship just yet, but uh, they even they are able to install Steam for Windows on the Chromebook, and uh, you could also install all kinds of other things now. That's kind of neat. It's kind of a neat accomplishment. And if I ended up with a Chromebook, I would love to play around with this. It's not going to make me buy a Chromebook, but if I had an extra Chromebook sitting around anymore, I'd give it a shot. The cro- you know, the crossover guys are pretty clever. They, it's, I, I, in the literally the room next to me, in the living room next mm-hmm. to me, I have my mm-hmm. Apollo in there, and uh, it's using it's crossover is running right now because I was patching Star Trek Online this morning and. The, the thing I love about Crossover over Play on Linux or uh, just pure Wine is they have a massive database now of applications that are built into the uh, Crossover Office installer. You just say, I want to install a Windows application. It yeah, dwarfs yeah. what's in Play on Linux because what's listed in there is, like, if it's well-rated, it works. Like, so what's in that list yeah. is yeah. really good stuff. And so for me... It's, it actually makes installing Windows applications easier than it is on Windows because it'll go out and get the setup.exe off of their weird server where I would. Windows repo. Yeah, it goes and pulls. Yeah, it's really nice. I, and the bottle support's super great. I can clone bottles really easily and experiment with stuff. So I love Crossover Office. Plus, they contribute upstream to wine. So I usually end up buying their product about once a year and knowing that some of that money is going towards wine development. So I, if this mm-hmm. sells a few more copies of Crossover for Android and helps more wine development, I'm all for that. So that's pretty. Yeah, cool. I don't. I have uh, the uh, man. We're ta- we're scraping the bottom of the barrel if we're talking about cares Noah can give to uh, I know. how we can how we can virtualize and. I could see it though. I could see it useful to some people, and I know you know there's a few folks on the audience. They got Chromebooks, Noah. They got the Chromebooks. Yeah, and they should install a real OS on it. They do, but you know what? <laughs> they got the Chromebooks too. You know, I mean, it happens. They're cheap and whatnot. All right, Noah. Let's stop talking about Chromebooks. That's all the news for this week. Let's go review Linux Mint 18. It's come time to review Linux Mint 18, and to be honest, I am actually looking forward to reviewing this particular release, not only because some of the new X apps, the new theme, the new rebase on Ubuntu 16.04, but also in light of their security issues in the past, I think it's a good lens to look at this particular desktop, especially as it looks like 16.04 could potentially use a little help to shape it up to a great desktop, and Mint's definitely known for that with a lot of popularity. Before we dive into the review, I want to dive into Linux Academy. Oh, Linux Academy, sponsor right here on the Linux Action Show and a great place platform for you to learn more about all of the tools and technology around Linux and open source. In fact, if you go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, you'll get our unplugged discount. It's so good. I went over to those jerks on the unplugged show. I punched them in their face. I took their promo code and I brought it over to this show. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go get the discount and try Linux Academy. Learn more about any particular application stack you want or deep dive into individual topics with learning plans available, quizzes, hands-on guides, instructor and mentoring help, and a fantastic community. You go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You'll also get to check out their brand new fancy website, the new stacks that you get to fork and make great learning cards from, and all of the other great features of the Linux Academy platform. They're growing like crazy, adding new staff all the time, reinvesting in existing content, and creating brand new stuff at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Thanks, Linux Academy. Okay, Noah. I want to start with my initial impressions of Linux Mint 18. And I will come right out and say I wasn't expecting a lot, 
But I did have a particular use case in mind, and I started pretty disappointed with my results. So I decided to load it uh, just for a little variety on the Dell XPS 13 of mine. And one of the nice attributes of this laptop is it has that infinity edgeless display that's high DPI. Mm -hmm. it, it really does look great. And one of the uh, reasons that the Mint project wanted to fork its own editor and create the you know all and it's all, all those different X apps was to ensure high DPI support. And it's one of the things they've worked on in the theme. So I wanted I wanted to use a high DPI display so I could try that out. Of course, when I first launched Linux Mint and installed it, it didn't detect that I was on a high DPI screen and the font was almost unreadable. In fact, if I if I maybe if I zoom in here, you can kind of begin to read it, but you can see, you can actually begin to see the screen. You can that's how that's how small the uh, the font was. Uh, that was my initial impression. One letter per pixel, and this isn't this is not a huge issue. As I very quickly figured out, uh, I went in went into the settings, kind of buried a little. It took me a little bit to find them, and I'll be honest, I had to Google a little bit. But once I found the high DPI setting, turned that on and was really, really, really impressed with how nice the Cinnamon desktop and the various applications looked high DPI on my XPS screen. I think it's the best-looking desktop. Mm -hmm. A couple of weird things like the controls, like the close and maximize and minimize, super tiny still, so really hard to find and click. Mm -hmm. But the window controls, the fonts, the menu, everything is just Gorgeous looking, really a nice setup, and I complemented that too by going with a, a dark theme. So I'll talk more about that in in a moment. But my initial impressions went from, "Oh, come on, you guys couldn't auto detect this," and even hints of worried that maybe it wasn't going to work. Because again, when you're going for mint, right, you're going for a pretty great out of the box experience. So I, right. I, I kind of thought, beginner experience. Yeah. I kind of thought high DPI. If it was, it seems like the math would be, oh, crazy high resolution detected, turn high DPI on. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple, but it didn't happen that way. But once I found the setting, mm, turned it on, really, really looked good. So my initial impressions went from mm, to holy smokes, this thing just booted crazy fast, and it looks great. And that's where I started. Uh, I'll talk more about it, but I want to give you a chance to share your kind of initial impressions on Mint and any hardware stuff you want to share. Yeah. So uh, you know, as I said before, we well uh, uh, in the in the pre-show, I was talking about. I'm I, I'm not the best person to review distros because I have a very, very limited subset of things that I have to have. And if I have those things, I'm perfectly content. I use VLC to watch my movies. I have Thunderbird to check my email. I browse the web in Firefox and I need a terminal and Telegram. And if I have those things and all of those things work right out of the box with me at Linux Mint, basically as good as is every other distro. And I did think, and I continue to think that one of the biggest advantages that Cinnamon has um, and why I think Linux Mint has become so popular is because it really models after that traditional Windows-like user experience, right? I have that button at the bottom. I click on it. It brings up my applications menu. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a Windows 7 clone, but it so closely models it that anyone that's comfortable in something like Windows 7 or Windows XP is going to have no problem using uh, Linux Mint. And that's not necessarily the case that I see even with things like Ubuntu, where Unity is actually a pretty straight, I think that bar makes it pretty straightforward to launch applications and 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 maximizing and minimizing. But, you know, things like, you know, the globally integrated menus and stuff make that a little difficult. Linux Mint doesn't have any of that stuff. So I still think it's it's a it's a great distro if you're just starting out in Linux and you're, you're looking to make that initial jump from Windows over to Linux Mint. Yeah, uh, I definitely, I would definitely uh, add a second to that. So the uh, the UI itself is pretty familiar. Um, 
why don't we start with a couple of things? Since we're talking about we're talking about the interface here, I have it loaded so I can show it to you on air. I have it loaded right here in a VM. It's a mm -hmm. pretty powerful VM, but uh, just a, just full disclosure, this is a VM. I, my actual production rig was on an XPS uh, 13. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll show you one thing that I really liked, Noah, and that would be the new theming. I'll come back to the update manager here in just a moment, which I think needs its own separate discussion. So if you mm -hmm. go look now in the, uh, the uh, set settings system, which is divided into appearance and preferences, hardware, and administration. They have a lot of really nice settings you can change, a lot of cool things like tweaking effects and whatnot. But let's go to themes. And uh, in here, it currently ships by default with the Mint X theme. You click this, expand it out, and you can choose the new Mint Y theme. This mm -hmm. is uh, based on Arc, which is one of my uh, favorites. But they have forked it a bit and tweaked a few things. And they also have Mint Y Dark. So I'll choose Mint Y Dark here. And for the icons, I'll choose uh, Mint Y. And you could choose, they have a couple of different options, but I'll choose Mint Y. And for the controls, I'll also choose Mint Y Dark. And now you'll begin to notice my, ba my, my whole color scheme has dramatically shifted. In fact, mm -hmm. just to sort of help uh, differentiate it, I can go change the desktop background here and uh, <clears throat> put something that makes it stand out a little more. So there we go. Now you can see the contrast of the theme, which I think is, is very, it's a very compelling looking theme. I think it looks very nice. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it is right now, I mean, it's available for other distros if you work at it, but right now it's, it's something that sets the Mint desktop apart. It's sort of a direction they're going in, but mm -hmm. how they implemented it is sort of really sort of a perfect echo of some of the things I'm starting to really like about Mint and some mm -hmm. of the things that are drawing me to it in a way that I was totally unprepared for. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that here in just a second. But before we go all into that, let's, while I still have it up here, let's talk about the update mechanism. Because the, the way Mint handles updates, the way they sort of encourage the user to not install kernel updates, has gotten some criticism on the internet. And so when you first launch the update manager, like I have just here in this VM, they have three different options that are presented with the user. The middle one is checked by default. The first option reads, don't break my computer, exclamation mark. And this is recommended for novice users, it says. Only select updates which are known to be safe or which do not impact critical parts of the operating system. Do not show me updates which can harm the stability of my system. Now the second option, which is chosen by default, optimize stability and security. This is recommended for most users, it says in asterisks. Only select updates which are known to be safe or which do not impact critical parts of the operating system, which I would interpret that to be kernel, but also show me security and kernel updates. So they're not, in, they're not selected by default, but they're shown by default. And then the last is always update everything. Recommended for experienced user, users. Again, in asterisks are also known as italics. Uh, select mm -hmm. all available updates. Keep my computer fully up to date. If a regression breaks something, I'll fix it. That mentality right there, if a regression breaks something, I'll fix it, shows you the, mo the order of priority. It's not about security. It's not about safety of the core security of the system. It's not about solving exploits. It's about protecting from regressions. That's, mm -hmm. So they have a bottom-up thinking to security with this particular rationale. So I'm going to choose mm -hmm. the middle one. That's the default, and usually default reigns supreme. So I say, okay. The other thing it'll do here in a moment, there it goes, is it now says, hey, before I check for updates, would you like to select a faster mirror? Again, something Mint has done for a while. But as somebody who uses a lot of distros, 
it's super cool when I come back to this and see this and I go, geez, that is nice that it's doing that for me. Every time I see that, I love that. So I open up the Mint selector and it automatically starts doing speed tests out to the different mirrors. And uh, mm-hmm. just for expediency, I'll choose uh, kernel.org because it's coming in at 1.4 megabits. And now when I update the cache, it's pulling from that source. All this kind of stuff. Really easy, really nice. And then you can see as it pulls down the updates, it'll start categorizing out the different updates in terms of their severity. I have issue with this. I feel like this is solving 2007's problem. There are ways to reliably deliver software now. It's just simply not good enough in 2016 to say the way of delivering software is too risky, so we're just going to try to put our heads in the sand and not deliver certain updates. That's that's like Noah's rationale for waiting a month to wait, use Fedora. You, and I think it's perfectly appropriate here. I I, I think it is, it is accepting a, tem- a technical limitation that does not have to exist. These technical limitations only exist because we created them and we have begun solving them with atomic updates, transactional updates, sandboxing, all of these particular technologies that smartphones have been using you know, now for years to update I, software. They are available to the Linux desktop. There are so there are ways to solve this. And whose responsibility, if nobody else's, is the special curator who's creating a better Linux experience? Sounds like the perfect group of people to say, we don't accept this answer. We are going to do better than this. We are going to find a way to have our users secure and our system reliable. It technically can be done. Why don't they do it? So I think there's a, there's a couple of things. <clears throat> First of all, I think that you're right. Their fundamental focus is on stability and usability, not necessarily security. That said, I don't necessarily think that Mate offers any real significant usability Mint. advantages over anything else. But be that as it may. The second thing is that I, I think that it is appropriate to, uh, if, if we're going to say that things like transactional updates and, and all these things- Whatever it are, is. Uh, wh- whatever it is. Whatever it is, if we're going to say that that's the answer, then there needs to be a, 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 a fundamental way that a user can do that without having to understand Linux or, or the system, right? So essentially, there has to be some sort of fallback mode. So when something breaks, it boots into the fallback mode and says, your system appears to be broken. Click this button to go back to whatever it was. And that, all, that whole process has to be automated. Well, that's, something- the, like, that's the whole point of Ubuntu snaps. Uh, Ubuntu snap updates or uh, atomic uh, Fedora atomic updates is you have a good you have a good known state that is that is atomically snapshotted and if the new update doesn't work you just reboot into the last known good state that seems to as be like long, a, and as long as there's an easy user way to do that that's fine it doesn't seem like those those tools it are actually it could be it could yet. be fully automated the system could detect a fail to boot restart mm-hmm. and simply select the last known good state it's totally mm-hmm. possible FreeBSD mm-hmm. in large part thanks to Alan Jude is now implementing ZFS boot environments to essentially accomplish this very thing. Uh, mm-hmm. This this is being solved by other platforms mm-hmm. already. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not even uh, it's not even freaking theoretical, dude. It has been shipping well, in production for that, years. Yeah. Well, snaps haven't. I mean, so uh, what, whatever it is that whatever it is that that is here, I think that it's appropriate to give them a little time to implement this stuff. I don't know that it, it, that that if it's not today, if it's if it isn't invented sure. today, okay. then they. I don't. I just. I think in the meantime, there. having sort of heavy-handedly recommended your users don't apply their kernel updates is not the right answer right now. I, I what I 
uh, you know, so I'm not I'm not a security auditor anymore. I don't do mm-hmm. penetration testing for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't been a sysadmin for a few years, so I'm not I'm not like the guy that should be looking at this stuff. But you know, when I look at the system, I see a super well put together system that acknowledges that the computer environments are changing in ways that are not necessarily pro user. Some mm-hmm. of the things that are really nice about using the Mint desktop is the file manager has features that I've completely forgotten about that are just mm-hmm. nice to have. My mm-hmm. terminal has a slight transparency. I forgot yes. how much I missed yes. that when Gnome took yeah. that away. They, nope. in, they turn coloring on by default. The menu mm-hmm. is fast. It searches really everything you could want, including installed items and possibly installable items. Mm-hmm. The whole experience is really nice. And I totally see the role this fits. So Mm -hmm. uh, this XPS, if I wanted a machine that I turned on, you know, every couple of weeks and did some work on and didn't want to have to worry about a thousand updates and what might break and what might change on me, that's, this is the perfect desktop for me in in that, Mm -hmm. in that scenario. So that's really where I connect with Mint, where I, what I, the uncanny valley that I can't overcome Mm -hmm. is what appears to be a fundamental flaw in my estimation of the distribution. I'm about to demonstrate what I think is a pattern of choosing the easy route over security. And it seems to be Mm -hmm. pervasive throughout the distribution. Convenience Mm -hmm. over security appears to be a choice made over and over again. Yep. And what I come down to is I think one of the core issues that doesn't sit with me with Mint is that it's one man's vision of a desktop environment. Mm-hmm. And the Linux desktop, at its very core, is a massively diverse a, a set of opinions mm-hmm. and what we all collectively think makes a great desktop environment. And sometimes that's chaos, but eventually, in a whole, it produces something really great. And it's the mm-hmm. diversity of those opinions that helps us accomplish things and think of things that the, the one man's vision can never foresee. And sometimes mm-hmm. that leaves a lot of room for things like major security improvements. Uh, I'm not, I don't really under, fully understand the technical ramifications of this, but one of the things I've noticed about Linux Mint is when I launch Firefox, mm-hmm. it, it really, it for a while now, has had this obnoxious uh, Linux Mint search homepage right here, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it has that pre-set up. There's pre-things pre-configured in Firefox. And I, 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 don't, I did not understand exactly how they accomplished this. So I did a little sniffing around, thinking about how I would have accomplished this back in the 90s or in the early 2000s when I was implementing solutions for school districts. And mm-hmm. I did it now in retrospect in a very insecure way because I was trying to quickly solve a problem and I wasn't really concerned about the ramifications of a massive user base because it's one computer lab, two computer labs. And what right. I did back then is I went in and I created some uh, some entries in the Etsy scale directory. And if you look in the Etsy scale directory, it's completely empty right now. However, if you do ls like dash la and see all files, you'll mm-hmm. notice there is a .mozilla folder in here. And if you go into this .mozilla folder, there's already a Firefox profile created in here that gets copied out to all new user accounts when they get created on the Mint system. And this is on the master ISO image, which means every single Linux Mint user has the same Firefox profile. But what's worse about that is the name is exactly the same, so therefore the path is exactly the same on every single install of Linux Mint. Mm -hmm. 
I could think of several reasons why that's not a great security practice. If somebody targeted Linux Mint again, this would be a particular vulnerability that Linux Mint users are exposed to simply because Clem chose to, inter to introduce standardized Firefox installs this way instead of a more appropriate way. And hmm. I can't help but interpret this as simply a convenience over security. Are the ramifications right. in the real world super bad? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a theoretical problem that will never. It, uh, it depends. If you're using, what if you're using Firefox to manage your passwords? Oh well, like you are. I, yeah, exactly. I'm, I, I <laughs> the, you know, the browser, the browser, rather for good choice or bad choice on my part, the browser is a central element to my security practice, right? So it is a big deal. At least to me, it would be. Yeah. You know, another thing I was uh, famously awful at was. Uh, a real loosey-goosey pseudorus file, because I didn't want to have to trouble with stuff. And so right. I uh, took a look at uh, the pseudorus file on uh, Linux Mint 18, and mm -hmm. a couple of things jumped out at me. There's a couple of things included in here that I wasn't aware of, like uh, this Mint update one's a pretty good one. Goes mm -hmm. out and this file in pseudorus.d goes out and calls a completely separate Python script. And that mm -hmm. Python script ends up doing all kinds of things in the background as root. If I made a couple of changes to that Python script on any single Mint installation, mm -hmm. and I know it's at user lib slash Linux Mint slash Mint update with a capital U slash check apt.py. And if I make a change to that file, I, it runs as, as root, root. Without the, the user knowing. It's just already in the sudoers file. Just, just mm -hmm. added there. Like, it's just not, it is, again, it, to me, it demonstrates sort of a convenience over a proper security implementation. Policy kit and other, other methods of accomplishing this have existed for years now. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 that is the kind of stuff that I feel like I can't really, I can't really go too far down this rabbit hole because those are just two directories I looked in. And if I keep right. going down this rabbit hole, if I looked at some of the custom apps that they've created, or mm -hmm. who, who knows how far this goes? This right. seems to be pervasive in my estimation, and that, what I'm worried about, is there could become a moment in time where a, a series of poor decisions, or just series of decisions made by somebody who doesn't have a lot of time, have led a system that is a lot, leaves a lot of users vulnerable that if somebody wanted to start picking at, could very easily be taken advantage of. Yeah. That, to me, is pretty freaky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially because Mint has taken over in such popularity, right? Like, we can debate the, the, the validity of Distraj, but the reality is that there is at least a perception, if not a reality, of a large majority of people that are using Linux Mint. And we actually tried at AltaSpeed for about a year and a half, we tried... Uh, using Linux Mint as the as the distro that we were setting people up with and, and using them on kiosks and stuff. And it wasn't because of the security features. It was for, for a couple other reasons that we ended up going away from that. But um, yeah, I do think they have made huge trades in security. Probably most people would argue too far uh, for the sake of convenience and usability. And again, I reiterate. I think it might be a philosophical I, thing too. Well, maybe. But like Clem I, might look I, at I, these things and go, you know what, guys, in the real world, that's just not a problem. And we're sitting here saying the way security breaches work is by island hopping and taking advantage of a series well, of vulnerabilities, and then you're in. And it's a house of cards. There's that, but there's a sim there's, I have a simpler question. My question is, if you look at something like, and I'm just, I'm just picking something, just Ubuntu Mate, for example, there is no significant usability uh, advantages over over Linux Mint over uh, over something like I don't know if I completely agree. What is there? I mean, it, it, tell me. I, I, if there is, I'm not seeing it. It is the preservation to above all else 
of the user experience. There is, there is, the reason why Cinnamon appeals, I think, to Windows converts is because there is a steady hand of features that you can expect will always remain. And they're not going to jolt you. They don't even change the background very much. They don't jolt you. They won't, they don't change. They've created this whole new theme and they don't even ship it by default. It's tucked away and it's gorgeous. And like this stuff is all part of the philosophy that makes Mint work so well. That's why they have fans that are donating considerable money. And that's why guys like uh, SJVN over at uh, ZDNet, he says it's the best Linux desktop period ever in his 25 years. He's never seen a better Linux desktop. And Mm -hmm. I think if you look at how he's using it, he's got... His, my computer, my documents, and icon to the Chrome web browser on his desktop, and then he's got other desktop icons over there. He's using it exactly like you would use a Windows 2000 or Windows 7 setup, and it mm-hmm. and that steady hand of being able to continue to rely on that paradigm is, while while the Mate desktop on Ubuntu Mate is great, it does move forward in some regards. It does move forward to GTK3. It pushes the envelope in some areas. It, it it does a really, really good job of walking that line, and it's definitely our preferred way of walking the line and a way that still totally captivates that old paradigm but springs mm-hmm. in some new stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, man, Mint's crazy. They're willing to fork the file manager, the web browser, the terminal, whatever. Well, not the web browser, but the, whatever they have to to, to, ca- to captivate that experience. And I, and, and I appreciate that, and I can respect that. I just – I don't think that it's – I guess what I'm saying is it, that that's – those are all very good reasons of why Mint is a great distribution, why it should stick around, and why a lot of people should consider it, particularly if it's a first-time switch. What that doesn't explain in any regard to any level is why these levels – or even close to this level – of, of of security vulnerabilities are are necessary or facilitating that experience. Yeah, I, I think it's you know it's all in like with that Mint update script in the background. It's to make that really super easy and user transparent. Not have to have a dialog bop come up and ask, hey, would you enter your password so I can refresh repos and stuff? I'm sure that's what it's for. The it, the the intent is there to make the user experience easier. The problem is, in practice, it makes the user potentially more vulnerable, especially when it's in an area around software updates and downloading software off the web Mm -hmm. and connecting to the internet. So, surprisingly, though, I know I just feel like I sort of made a case against it. Uh, If I put on my average user hat, if I put on my, God, I'm exhausted and I don't want to mess with computers today hat. Yeah. There is that aspect of Mint that does appeal. Like, if I want a box that I'm not really worried about the security at all, Mm-hmm. It just doesn't really exist. But if there was a bot, I would run Mint on it because I feel like it almost is going to be the most guaranteed, problem-free experience. So uh, to follow up on our last review, mm-hmm. this machine right here, it dual boots between uh, the uh, Heathen uh, Windows 10 and Mint 17. And Mint 17 has been running on that machine since the day Mint 17 released. And mm-hmm. it has been my... L- Least problem experience for video conferencing under Linux ever. It's been flawless. I haven't had any problems. It works every single week. It has been a great distro. And I've, I've done, you know, I do updates about once every three months on it. I'm just not, that's not what I use it for. I just use it to make video calls. And Mint has been a reliably solid update. And if I had a computer mm-hmm. where I don't want kernel updates, but I'm still willing to get Chrome updates and, you know, supplement some of that with snap packages or PBAs or whatever, I... I actually think I'm. There is a work case for me with Mint, and I'm going to keep it on the XPS for a while, potentially as long as I've kept 17 on that. 
Um, Did, and here's you know what have been interesting hmm. in and potentially show content when it doesn't work. Upgrade seventeen to eighteen on that machine and see how that how that process goes. Yeah, there are guides, but they heavy handedly say don't do it. I mean, I, I have the guide oh, linked to the oh, show oh, notes. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Basically, they say uh, if it's if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And don't if you don't need to update, don't update. If there's nothing compelling you to update, don't do it. They're like discouraging people to update. Um, sounds like my kind of distro. The only problem is, and I so then I've, that scared me away from updating that because they do need that in production. That's why I put Mint on there. Mm-hmm. So the other nice thing about these is they're supported for a while. So now both these machines are going to have distros that have long support that are designed not to break. So mm-hmm. I I will give that a shot for a while and see how that works for me. I think uh, on any system where I was connecting to public networks a lot um, mm-hmm. or if I did personal banking or Bitcoin management on that machine or uh, dealed with any, any really private sensitive information uh, or was just worried about potentially if there was going to be a target in the Linux desktop space, my desktop might be the one, I wouldn't mm-hmm. run Linux Mint. If, however, you know, I wanted something that is – as, is it's consumer friendly easy it's you know packaged up and ready to be productized that any you know anybody can use i think i think linux mint 18 works in that scenario and i think there are a couple machines in my life where that fits so mm-hmm. i can't necessarily advise linux mint 18 to the linux enthusiast at this time mm-hmm. but for those of you who are willing to go in with your eyes open and acknowledge what it is i i'd say give it a shot i think Here's, the cinnamon so, desktop is really polished I guess here's my question, and I know it's definitively how I'd answer this question. Would you put your mother on Linux Mint? If your mom came to you and said, hey, you know what? I'm looking for uh, looking for a new computer. Would you feel comfortable setting her up on Linux Mint and letting her go hogshead with it? I might. Yeah, I might. Really? Yeah, I might. Okay. See, I, I might because in my experience, long term, one of the things that does tend to mess up these Linux desktops is eventually some update has bitten them. That's what, took my, that's what got my dad off Ubuntu desktop is eventually an update. He couldn't boot after an update. And, uh, you know, I just nuked a Fedora 24 install because of a kernel update. It seems like whenever there's something that's going to screw up, it's that. And so I might. Uh, The truth be told, I would I would prefer to do something like Ubuntu Mate 1604. That would be my that would be my preference. Um, That's exactly where I'm at. That's exactly where I'm at. Uh, I, there is there there if there what whatever advantages that you have so carefully outlined that that Mint offers, I don't think they are enough to keep me on, on on something like Linux Mint. And there are some other there are esoteric issues too, you know, it's not not to pick the whole thing apart or anything, you know, or to get nitty gritty. But like so, for example, HP uh, JetDirect printers have this issue, which by the way are pretty po- popular printer. <laughs> add, a network printer to, to to Linux Mint, and it will work for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden it will stop working. It turns out there is a bug report open on this, and their answer, or somebody's answer was, yeah, we're aware of it. Someday we'll get around to fixing it. But it has plagued Linux Mint for like the last like six versions. And actually, that was the straw that broke the camel's back when we said <laughs> we are not installing Linux Mint on anything uh, for Alta Speed ever again. Because it's just, that is, to try to explain to your client that it worked one day and it didn't work another day. And not only that, hmm. but the people who made the software were aware of it. They just hmm. haven't quite gotten around to fixing it. <laughs> you know? I, yeah, but that feels like that okay. could happen to any particular distro, maybe. I uh, guess, but if HP publishes a yeah, freaking, yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, a it, Ubuntu it, it generally, script yeah. thing to install the HPLAP thing. So One last thing. Just, uh, you know, one of the things why I, would, why I might give mom Ubuntu Mate today Mm-hmm. is 
a big part of it is that welcome screen that it makes it yeah. really easy. Yeah, the software center, yeah. And, you know, they have that too in in mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Linux Mint. It starts mm-hmm. up with the major categories right here, and the featured category is pretty legit. They got VLC, Gparted, GIMP, Wine, FileZilla, Thunderbird, Audacity, Skype, Inkscape, Stellarium, Blender, and a bunch of others, including Shutter and... Uh, Scribulous and Sublime Text and MPV and VirtualBox and Spotify, Steam and Minecraft and easy Dropbox installation, including file manager integration, all just just a click away in the in the software manager. So they expose that stuff too. So they win there in my estimation. But you're right. Uh, the, I think at this point in time in 2016, for me, one of the one of the things that I would take into consideration for totally new users is how large is the community support and does it sort of better represent a broader vision of the Linux ecosystem because long-term, that's probably your better bet. Yeah, that's good. I didn't think about that. You're right. That's good. Yeah, but in the meantime, you know, it's still a pretty solid release and I could totally understand why people love it. I just don't think I could, at this point in time, recommend it to the enthusiasts. What I what I what for I think would change like that mess with computers for people who like to mess with. I would I would make what would change my opinion on that would be if somebody that was really well respected did a complete audit of Linux Mint, the X apps and went through it and said, okay, yeah, there's a couple of things, but it's safe to use. Then I think I would change my opinion. But some of the stuff I've seen in the course of this review, some of the stuff that to me seems to indicate a deeper, pervasive, philosophical way of managing a system, which would indicate it's probably throughout the entire system, has really kind of cooled my enthusiasm. I, it's, I, I had a real like roller coaster ride with this. Started unimpressed because my, my display didn't work. Got super impressed, really started to like it, really started to love it, and then ran into the security issues and was mm-hmm. really disappointed. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. Just leave some feedback for episode 426. And that is the Linux Action Show's review of Linux Mint. 18. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But before we get out of here, we got some feedback to go through. And Noah's got a war story to share on the show, which I think I know the ending to, but I'm not quite sure. And before we get to all of that, I want to mention the great folks over at System76, creators, designers, perhaps you could even say parents of machines born to run Linux. These are machines that run Linux out of the box. You don't have to fight or fuss with nothing. It's a great experience. It's the kind of experience that if you were going to say, if you were going to convert someone to Linux and want to make sure that they didn't have any problems, this is the machine you'd give them. Which turns out makes a great workstation for you when you when you want a nice, reliable system that you can comfortably upgrade. Also, we've been talking about Mr. Dominic from Coda Radio all episode this week. Well, look at this one. The Rattel Pro just came in. The Rattel Pro just came in. And, you know, when you buy a machine over at System76, you should tell them something special. What should you tell them, Noah? <laughs> you should tell them that I switched them, I switched you to Linux, and that's why you're buying a yeah. machine. She, she uh, sent me a message, and apparently just on Wednesday alone, she had already gotten a bunch of people that have written into her and said, hey, by the way, uh, Noah switched me to Linux, and I want to order a computer. So, yeah. And she'll send you something special, so there's something in it for you, too. Yeah, even if you already run Linux, just say, Noah switched me to Linux, <laughs> and he said you'd send <laughs> no, me something special. Che- I know, no, that that will incur. Then they'll say I'm cheating. All but right, don't let them know you're cheating. Okay, so uh, and I, I can't wait to hear about uh, Michael's Retel Pro uh, on the Coda Radio program. He just picked one up to make it his Linux workstation. They're surprisingly compact. 
you can still fit a full-size graphics card in there, but they're surprisingly compact. The Rattel Pro, <laughs> built right here in the U.S. of A. Lots of great desktops and laptops from System76.com. We got two emails sent into Linux Action Show at JupiterBroadcasting.com. First one comes in from Warren Y. Uh, on feedback on 425 on trusting Microsoft, he said in, in that bit about Skype's announcement that would be coming later that day, you reiterated the stale distrust about Microsoft. The bit that got me to write the talk is cheap comment. The thing is... Now it has actions. GitHub.com slash Microsoft. I see 40 pages of open source projects there. What more did you want from them? Are you going to keep on this until they open source absolutely everything? No. I saw how that worked already. A bunch of people in the Linux community continued to distrust Sun after they opened absolutely everything too. Your thoughts, Noah? That seems like a response to you. So, yeah, so... First of all, uh, as far as when will I st start trusting Microsoft? Well, let's start with this. I have had to endure 15 plus years of Microsoft screwing over their end user to make a buck. So when we get to 15 plus years of them uh, providing valuable software um, that 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 help their users with their users' best interest in mind for 15 years, at that point, then maybe we can talk. But if you want to know what what has to happen today in order for me to trust Microsoft, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this too, Chris, I want them to to hurt in some way for the benefit of the Linux community. Take some step that that costs a significant amount of money. Bring a port Microsoft Office, not the web version, an actual version. Hire a bunch of developers and spend some some blood and sweat to get Microsoft Office to run on Linux. I wouldn't use it, but there are people that would. That would be yeah. an example of something hmm. they could do to bring Skype. Actually, make a real Skype version. Don't just make a, an Electron app, wrap a web version inside of a thing, and send it over to Linux. Hire some dedicated Linux developers and show that you have an invested interest in Linux. So far, so good to the point that neither Chris and I can see here and say, well, they're actually just doing this because they want to get it on Chromebooks or they want to do... Show me that you have interest in Linux and in the community, and not just uh, this is this is this is a this is a source of revenue for us in this way. So we're going to do it. If Linux right. happens to be it, then so. So be here's it. where I think the root of your "I want them to hurt in some way" comment comes from is the reason they are now um, embracing open source, using hard emojis, and shipping on Linux is that's what makes them profits. Microsoft made a profit decision. Mm -hmm. Microsoft, as any responsible public company that has board members right. that expect these things from them, made decisions that are better for them profit-wise because right. the market conditions changed. So their right. motivations for getting to open source weren't to better a particular open source platform or ideology. Yeah. You could argue that about any company's motivations, including sure. Red Hat. But sure. here's where I think it prevents people from trusting them is the moment that the Microsoft Corporation determines that it is better for them to close something up and own it completely behind a wall again, because that's the more profitable solution, they will make that decision immediately. Right. Let's just go no crazy, just so I can, just so you, yeah, just as an example, let's say over the next 10 years, every other cloud hosting provider, Rackspace, Amazon, Linode, DigitalOcean, GoDaddy, Everybody that's in the hosting game is dwarfed by Azure. Let's just say that Microsoft has managed to create such a compelling product at such a reasonable price point with such great et cetera, et cetera, that they have owned the virtualized cloud hosting market. If there was a move they could make at that point to change something so that everybody was locked into using Azure at that point, 
they would make it immediately. They would have no qualms about exactly. making that choice. And that's exactly. why some of us can't fully trust them because they're going which way the wind blows them. And at the moment, the wind is blowing them this way. Now, will that moment be five, 10 years? Potentially. But some of us are looking at this with 20, 25 years of experience with this company and right. have lived next to this company their entire lives. That would be me. Have family members and friends that have worked there for our entire lives, have watched mm -hmm. them for, have, have been on campus many times, have been offered jobs by them several times, have a pretty good insight to how they function as a company. And for those of us who have that perspective, it's particularly hard. That doesn't mean you don't take advantage of the technology they present when they right. w at the time. And if mm -hmm. the code's open in GPL or MIT or whatever it is, we can still use and take advantage of it. But they are simply and all at four this of those projects that are apparently on GitHub. They are at this point posting on GitHub because that's the way the market winds have blown them. And we're happy they're there, but there's no guarantee that's where they'll stay. Markets change, right. industries change, and Microsoft will change with it to make a profit. I Kevin don't see Red Hat making those same compromises over the years. Red Hat seems right. to be on a pretty steady course. Same with many other open source companies. So that's, I think... Well, and Red Hat has... Has, has gone on the line to, you know, to exemplify that they... Uh, that they care about making a profit as any good company should. There's nothing wrong with that, but they also highly value the the community and and the Linux user base. If you'd like to know more about that, just go look at all the employees that are at Red Hat that are using their own freaking product rather than Microsoft Windows, which is literally the business standard on the desktop everywhere else. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. You said it much more succinctly than I could have. Number two comes in, and uh, I don't think, because we had to switch uh, pay services, I don't think we got a name on this one. So we'll go with Jedediah. Jedediah writes in uh, with two questions. Number one, I'm running Linux Mint 18 huh, as a media center PC connected to a TV. I've disabled the screensaver completely, but under power management settings, I set the screen to turn off when inactive for one hour. My TV has an auto shutdown feature that powers off the unit if there's nothing going on. I like the setup because I can walk away from the media center. The display will automatically shut off after 90 minutes, uh, which is kind of, I guess that is pretty cool. But if I'm watching the big show, YouTube or Netflix and Chrome, the system does not recognize that I'm playing video. So the screen will turn off one hour into a movie or Netflix. I tried caffeine and a few other scripts that are supposed to disable the screen saver when a browser is playing video, but it doesn't seem to affect power options. Any suggestions? Unfortunately, man, uninstall the X screensaver if you can. I mean, really. Yeah. <laughs> so this is actually a piece of feedback we covered the other week, and the uh, apparently in the pasting of the pastebin, it cut off the, the actual response that I was I was trying to uh, I was trying to get. But what that is exactly what the guy, what a uh, second viewer wrote in to say was uninstall X screensaver, restart, and and then that problem should go away. And I didn't know how to answer that last week when he wrote that in. Yeah, I've and been there with KDE too. Uh, and so okay, so is, is his question answered then? I think so. Good. I think you just answered it. Good, very good. Well, that was easier yeah. than I thought. So I wanted to get a little war story from you. So you uh, you have a confession to start with, and then a war story. What's my confession? Uh, I mean, I don't want to have to out you, but... Uh, Welcome to BSD Unplugged. You, oh, yeah, yeah. you installed so a BSD device, last, didn't you? For, well, for, so for, uh, for all week as I'm hosting shows, I a couple of different times I talked about how... Uh, Anytime I've installed FreeNAS, I've never really had to touch it. I just install and just leave it. In fact, on on TechSnap, we went into that at, at some great length, and I talked about how I just I never touch the machines, and they're all just they're actually even hacked together machines that I didn't even really put any thought into, and they just they continue to run, and that's how great FreeNAS is, and that's why I like FreeNAS. Well, <clears throat> turns out at the beginning of the year, I decided I was going to take some time and plan out the perfect file server, so I would not have to worry uh, about. Yeah, I've any been there. Problems. Been there. Mm-hmm. 
picked out the right motherboard, picked out the case I wanted, researched the heck out of drives. Yeah. And I was migrating off of a FreeNAS box that I, and I'm not kidding. When I tell you this is a hacked together box, I mean, I took a server that was was already functioning as a different purpose, took it out of production after like two years, and it was sitting there. And I just, I went to Best Buy, bought the cheapest hard drives I could, threw them in there, and it ran for like six years. I Which, never had a problem. as an IT pro for years, you have know you know what a great idea that is for your files. Yeah, I knew, I knew it was a horrible idea, but it was one of those <laughs> things. It was a monster that grew up inside of me. I was just going to test FreeNAS, and then yeah, I put yeah. a couple files on it, and then I started putting a couple movies on it, and before mm -hmm. I just got away from it before mm -hmm. I knew it. I had terabytes of stuff on there, and I was like, now this is a huge part. So I buy all these drives. I get everything set. Everything is – I read the little FreeNAS manual to get everything set up right, and I'm super happy. I'm How like, long right, ago is this? January. Oh, January. okay, okay. Yeah, so in January. Okay, so like my FreeNAS experience is, is about a year, two years out of date. We do have a FreeNAS in production here, but it just runs. Uh, so you have a different experience with FreeNAS where I did because this is already sounding a little different than what I ran into. So I brand new machine, brand new hard drives, FreeNAS was installed. Everything is great. And I, you know, I have it on a 10 gigabit uh, link from the file server over to, over oh, to the nice. switch. And then and my lab has a 10 gigabit link back. So and this then is there's a serious setup here. For everywhere else. So it, it, everything is great. Well, I noticed the other night I go to copy a file and it just fails. Well, that's weird. So I restart FreeNAS and the file is copying, but it just, my file speed just tanks down yep. to like Been there. 20 megs, 20 megs a second. I'm like, that should not be happening. So I go downstairs to my workstation, my 10 gigabit link, and I try and copy, and it just tanks again. And I'm like, that's got to be a, right that's a that's a server side issue. Well, so I Google a little bit, and some. And first, I'm thinking it's probably Samba because before I was using NFS, and now I was using Samba, so it could accommodate all these uh, little media players. And I'm like, yeah, Samba sucks. Windows screwed it up. That's the problem. And I Google it, and turns out a bunch of people are saying maybe it's a failed hard drive. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. I want, so wait, I hold on, stop right there. I got to defend Samba for a second. If you're actually com if you're communicating Samba client to Samba server. It's actually mm -hmm. a very good, sophisticated protocol. Yeah, it, 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 it actually is superior in some ways to how Windows com clients communicate. So it, actually for Linux Samba to Linux, is, Samba is totally legit. It's why I switched from NFS. So I, I do a little bit of digging, and I find a bunch of errors in, in the screen itself. So I send uh, a screen cap to Alan, and I said, hey, Alan, uh, you know, you're the BSD guy and I'm having these problems. Uh, do you, is this anything that you would be worried about? And he goes, click on the alert, see if you see any alerts thing. So I go back and I look at the alerts and sure enough, it says that there's a, there's a problem. One of the more of the devices is, or no, that, yeah. no, sorry, wrong tree, wrong tree. Oh. But so I, so I ask him and I say, you know, what's going on? And he's, and I said, should I be concerned? And he goes, run Zpool uh, status desv, get the full message. So I give him the whole message and he goes, yeah. That's okay. It's just ZFS saving you from bit rot. He'd recommend running scrub and then rerun the data in the background. But everything is safe. You can keep using your drives. Your drives are not failing. Everything's fine. I'm like, oh, good. Okay, good. Everything's going. Yeah, that's good. So I run the I run the the uh, the 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 scan again, and I get even more errors than I got the first time. So I message him back, and I said, yeah. So this is ha this is I reset the counters, but it's still happening, and. Uh, and and so he gets back to me and says, "Yeah, this is this is definitely a problem. Uh, you're going to have to end up replacing that drive." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, what is involved with that? Because I've never had to do this before. I have like seven FreeNAS boxes, eight FreeNAS boxes that I've deployed, never replaced a drive before." And he's like, "It's super easy. You power the machine down, you stick the drive in, and you power it back up." And everyone that I had talked to after that, I said, "This is what Alan tells me is going to happen. I'm a little skeptical." Well, turns out. <laughs> I power the free NAS box down. I open the drive bay up and pull the drive bay out because I put hot swap drives in it because I planned. Put the new drive in. 
I stuck the new drive in. I closed the bit. I started the FreeNAS box back up. I logged into the web interface under tasks. It said replace drive. I clicked the button and I waited. And about five minutes later, my drive came back online. Yeah. And shortly after that, I got the message saying it was being resilvered. And today it is running flawlessly like nothing ever happened. It's like, <laughs> I was I was shocked at how I, 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 I set my whole Friday aside to be home working on that. Expecting to go south. <laughs> it ended up taking like 10 minutes. Like it was great. So if you need a, I love Linux. I'm, I'm a big Linux guy. I run Linux on my desktop. But if you need a file server, man, go with BSD. Just just use FreeNAS. It is, FreeNAS it is the is best great. file server yeah. ever. And it's it's it's, it's backed by IX and they are advertiser on other shows, but not an advertiser on this show. And I still, I just yeah. respect the hell out of that company. And I respect the hell out of the people that work there. And I respect the fact that they are paying some of the FreeNAS developers to work there at IX and keep that going. Also, maybe I'll just mention really quick, uh, zfsbook.com. ZFSbook.com oh, yeah. is Alan Jude and Michael Lucas's uh, book they created together, FreeBSD Mastery. And specifically, this is the second one, and Alan has made it clear that there are a couple of FreeBSD-specific things, but if you understand the counterpart commands in Linux, the stuff this book covers is applicable to Linux as well, he says. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's, uh, you can check it out at ZFSbook.com, and it's a bunch of really great advanced ZFS stuff. There's actually two books now, and it's, cra- it's crazy cheap. Uh, you can, if you want, you can get like the ebook for like two bucks or three bucks or two ninety nine. Yeah, the ebook is uh, or print. No, that's print two ninety nine for print, they, and it's available also on uh, uh, Gumroad, so you can get a no DRM version. Uh, in three different formats, so whichever is best for your e-reader. Or you can get the print version. So that's CFS Book, and it's written by our very own Alan Jude and uh, his co-author, Michael Lucas. You know, I, one thing you mentioned FreeNAS, and you gave it a real solid endorsement there, and I, that's what we're using here in production too. If I had a bit more, um, either if I was a little more reckless or if I just had more faith in ButterFS, I would be really, really tempted by Rockstore. Rockstore mm. looks to be a really nice Linux-based, ButterFS-powered NAS solution. Mm-hmm. I really what's like the it. Ad- what's the advantage of getting away from FreeNAS? My, the only thing I ever had before against FreeNAS was I could never pull the drives out and plug them into my Linux box, and now I can even do that. So I, I have you know, like the I have so I have zero motivation to move away I'm, from FreeNAS. The problem with FreeNAS is that I am just not the best candidate for FreeNAS, and I don't really use BSD enough to just run a straight-up BSD server with a huge ZFS array. So uh, you will immediately break your FreeNAS rig the moment you start poking around underneath the hood, and you should not do that, and they have taken precautions to help prevent damage, but the plugin system is really the only supported way to load and run software on a FreeNAS rig. My core issue is, is to build a really great FreeNAS system to make it really fast to handle the data speeds we need, it just ends up being a killer box. And at that point, I have so much spare com- compute and RAM when it's not doing much that I want to use it for other tasks. And, oh. and, and, I, and I, if, I, if I try to install something that's not available as a plugin, I will break the FreeNAS installation. I will, it will. Gotcha. So for me, having I just something that's... I an appliance, yeah. Right, and then you're great. Like If you treat it like you would an appliance... Uh, like you might like a Netgear or like a, a ReadyNAS. Uh, no, what's the other one? Yeah. Like another popular Cunology. one is Cunology. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're then you're going to be fine, and you might even just consider going that route. But for me, uh, if it's if it's possible, if it's Ubuntu or Debian or CentOS under that hood, and mm-hmm. maybe I could install something 
like Docker, or maybe I could install one daemon. I, I just See, like my, my having... My file that. server is too important. I'm okay having two or three grand tied up in a box that all it does yeah. is host that that does not bother and that, me at all. That works well uh, in a business capacity, but personally, I can't really yeah. afford to do that. Yeah, yeah, so that would yeah. be that's how we've implemented the FreeNAS is a standalone rig, and that's what it does. And it doesn't run; mm -hmm. it doesn't even run a, a single plugin. It just exposes NFS yeah. storage to our virtual environment mm -hmm. and runs mm -hmm. a Samba daemon, um, mm -hmm. and it runs like that for more than two years. And it's almost damn near ninety five degrees out, and that's in that garage right now. And it's it's not the first yeah. year it's been through those conditions, and it still runs like a champ. And um, they've done a great job setting it up. I have the FreeNAS Mini, and it's just been amazing. So I agree. It, but I personally, for myself at home, I can't afford to buy a $1,000 FreeNAS and a machine powerful enough to do real-time encoding and decoding of media that I need like my home server to do. So it yeah. has to be one box for me. And sure. then that brings into a whole other set of requirements because I can only afford one box. And for mm -hmm. me, then I want a Linux system that I can manage properly, that has software available for it the way I want it, and that has all of the user tools. And maybe that for me is just a straight up, you know, Linux install, and it's not a pre-built distro. I love these pre-built distros, though, because they can make some things really simple, like single-click activation of a media server or something like that. And well, not just that, but man, I tell you what, if I would have, I would have hosed the, if I had to dig in and start trying to figure out how to, from the command line, replace, <clears throat> disattach a storage from a from a volume, and then replace that, and then and then resell and do all that. I mean, I don't know exactly what's all involved with that. Oh my God, yeah. was it nice to plug the yeah. drive in, click yeah. a button, and go. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with myself. You, with want, you want straight up reliable storage and the plugins. There's like a bunch of great plugins for uh, FreeNAS. Yeah. Uh, if and you want something that's rock solid, the nice thing that they have there is uh, ZFS is just a super great file system. They've made it crazy easy to use. And mm -hmm. IX has FreeNAS developers and ZFS developers and TrueNAS developers who are shipping this to thousands of customers on staff, and that's mm -hmm. the knowledge going into creating that product. And if you just, I don't. The problem is I can't think of another Linux NAS distro that can compete mm -hmm. at that level because that's a unique competitive advantage that FreeNAS and IX has that pretty much nobody else has, unless some other major storage vendor came out and launched a big product like that. Um, and then they'd still be years behind in far, as far as community involvement. And again, they have core developers on their staff that are paid full time, and they get to work I, on that product. You yeah, can't beat I, that for your storage. I was, I was a, I was a FreeNAS user and advocate before Friday, but it'll be a cold day in hell before you pry me off of a FreeNAS box at this point. Yeah, and I think the next time we go with another storage upgrade here, it'll likely be FreeNAS. In the meantime, for my home setup, I might look at some other solutions. I might tinker around, and if I do something like that, I'll report back here on the show and give you guys a review. Because, like I said, like we just illustrated, there's definitely different use cases for different setups. And there's sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, my 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 version is maybe more matching some of the people that are just creating something at home, where Noah's is where yeah. you represent something for your business. And I'm well, walking you, both you lines. You definitely learn more. You definitely – I don't know anything about what happened. I mean, I didn't learn anything from Right, because like, it's all ZFS commands happening if, in the background well, that is doing all and that. And here's, here's the other part, too. It went well for me. If it didn't go well for me, I, I'd be hosed because I have no idea what it's doing. I that is my other – that is so – see, yeah. uh, my FreeNAS story where I've had a failure, because the current FreeNAS machine has never had a failure. But the one I custom built, mm -hmm. I had two drives die at once on me, and mm -hmm. the UI didn't even have the bring back online option that you clicked. Like that – 
I don't even know if the fundamental ZFS tool on the on the command line existed at the time. And so it was an entirely different scenario. It was build a new pool, set up the new drives, move my data over at the astonishingly bad copy. You talked about 20 megabits uh, or 20 megs a second. If you keep mm-hmm. pushing it, like when you have multiple drives that have died, I was lucky mm-hmm. to get eight megabytes or two megabytes when I was migrating off that thing. It was a brutal your, problem. At least your data was there. Yeah, I did get my data. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but the thing was, is because I didn't fully understand the core FreeNAS system, and not all the tools were available via the GUI, and I was a total ZFS noob, because this is like two years ago, mm-hmm. I, le- I felt very um, uh, vulnerable. I didn't have any power yeah. over my data. It was yeah. very, because like, it was precious stuff that I wanted to yeah. get off there. And yeah. I kept thinking, if this was a Linux box, because it's not yeah. even a full FreeBSD environment on FreeNAS. It's a right. slimmed, so some of the tools, like package management and stuff, don't exist. And so if you ever have to get into that FreeNAS installation, you are... It's doable, and there's probably more documentation now, but you are mm-hmm. not with a bunch of tools. Where if it was a standard, minimal Linux installation, I felt like when it comes to my data, I could be like you know a data archaeologist. I could break into the system through a cheroot off of a live boot and, exactly. and mount, the, mount the file exactly. system and, and install yeah. rsync using apt-git and rescue my data, and I have a path to – and that's where this I – right this right here is what this right exactly what you're talking about is why I why I was hesitant with with uh, with uh, with uh, FreeNAS Free prior to to Friday was because all the everything I know about how to recover data doesn't apply because it's BSD exactly what you're talking about yeah but if they're going to give me a system that's so that is so intuitive that I don't even have to get that far into the troubleshooting process that I click a button and everything yeah. just comes back on well, the thing is they just keep I making that, that they keep making it a better product too you know yeah. they now they have a lot more tools exposed through the GUI and they keep iterating on it and they have a lot of experience so it just does keep getting better and that's why I still like you know even after that experience, I still got my data I was able to rebuild and the way mm-hmm. the imaging works on freenas uh, I re reloaded the freenas instance. I reconnected the storage, named the shares the same thing, and it was like nothing had ever happened. Because, yeah. you know, everything in the ZFS array was all the same permissions, the same data. It was, mm-hmm. I flipped a switch and no one noticed. I just completely changed out the file server. It, I, it was impressive. And so because I managed to get my data and because they've, it's even better now than it was back then, I when people ask me, and I feel awful because, like, I don't... You don't know. We never answer this question on the show because I feel so bad. We get questions. What file? What what, what NAS software should I use? I'm always like free NAS. Use free NAS. And I want to be able to say Rockstore. Well, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed about it anymore. I, I I'm you can I'm, I'm going to be the hardest core free NAS advocate ever after this experience. I just I you know the thing is I did everything right. I researched the drives. I even bought, I was telling Rakai he thinks this is a superstition. I think there's some validity to it. I started working on this back in like July and August when we bought our new house, and I bought the drives a couple months apart. Because I wanted them to be from different batches, so that if they had a bad batch, I was, I, it was recommended to me that if they have bad batch of drives, then all your drives don't fail at one time because you bought them from. from that I is mean, really planning it out. Well, you, I mean, you name it, I did it. I mean, there was nothing. There's, I had the hard drives, temperature sensor things. I, there's nothing more I could have done to plan this thing out. And I mean, I, you get bit by a hard drive failure, there's nothing you can do about it. But uh, in fact, I just, you didn't lose was, data, right? I was just, yeah, exactly. I was just so, and you know, the other thing is too, is my wife is watching a TV show that she's been wanting to get into. And so she's like, she's sitting at home, like drilling into this. And all of a sudden, like, I'm like, I have to keep telling her I have to pause because I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta restart. I gotta restart. Whoa. What she happened to local to- media, bro? It's on the file server, but uh-huh, it's local, okay. but local in my house. Okay. But, 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 but 
the the cool thing was yeah. even in its degraded state, she's still watching Star Trek yeah. and still moving stuff over. Oh, while that's what she's watching. I love it. Is she, is she loving it? Is she loving it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I can't talk oh, to you. Good. I totally can't talk good. To you good. It. I'm glad because you know, uh, ah, boy, I, I that to me is like there are some bad episodes, and if you caught those, you would. I don't know. You might get the wrong impression. Yeah, she's going through the whole TOS in uh, before that movie comes out in eight days or whatever that's really smart 70, because the, the, those some episodes those movies constantly call back to tos so you don't have to watch 70, them, 70 some episodes it's a shame that it's only 70 to tell you the truth it's a damn shame and uh i respect her to do that because the first season is really good tv if you get past the technical limitations of the 1960s the second season right. begins to fall off and the third season with the exception of like two or three episodes is real bad but it's such good basis to have for the rest of Star Trek. But anyways, sure. we should probably wrap that up. This That yep. brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. If there was something you didn't hear us talk about, like, why didn't these guys mention this? LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. Submit it there. We also have the feedback thread where we'd like to get your feedback. Open source projects we should talk about. Another great place to put it. LinuxActionShow at JupiterBroadcasting.com is where you email or go to JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. fact, why not just go right to the chat room and join us live on a Sunday? Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get the live time converted to your local time, and then join us at jblive.tv. We've got local embedded streams. We've got links that you can copy and throw into MPV or VLC and watch in a desktop app. And we're even broadcasting on YouTube, which has 240p resolution, which I use when I watched a little bit of uh, last week's Linux Action Show Live. It's really nice to have that scaled down resolution, and I rumor has it a little birdie tells me that our main scale engine stream will have that feature too. You can check it all out at jblive.tv. He's at Colonel Linux. I'm at Chris LAS. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Have you have you looked at how you formatted that runs Linux line in the world's largest podcast to go in the show notes for the podcast that's seen by the largest Linux audience. Have you looked how you formatted that runs Linux line? <laughs> how drunk were you last night when you wrote that? Okay. I ended up drunk, but I didn't get home from work till like three in the morning. I had something to do. Uh, Fours Fusion and the capital R, capital U, lowercase n, capital S, Linux, all uppercase, on a Raspberry Pi. Fours Fusion. There's an answer for this. Okay. okay. <laughs> answer for this. What it is? <laughs> what it is is I. Do you ever have that time? You know how you you asked me. You're like, do you ever run Linux? And I'm like, yes, I have one. Well, immediately after that, I forgot what it was I had found, and so I spent like the rest of the weekend trying to think what it was. So I'm <laughs> in my car and I'm driving. I'm driving home from work, and I remember what the runs Linux is. So. You're doing it, yeah. Yeah, I see. I, I, on my laptop, I'm like, oh, runs Linux, and then I just kind of like pasted the link, and I'm like, I'll fill out everything else later. Notice there's no description underneath. Yeah, yeah. I never went back to fill everything out later, at which point I would have recorrected the, the runs I'm like, Linux. he misspelled Ford, <laughs> so he's probably, something's going on. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, I don't know if you watched last week's last, but I actually said, I'm like, so here's the thing we're going to say. Here's the news. No, right yeah, no, 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 you got to no, quit screwing around. We got to start the show. Thank you. What's your preference for brick, 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 it down? You know, the, the problem is like, I was, I don't have a ton of, uh, I don't like mint. <laughs> I guess is uh, that is a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's so, one of the I mean, outtakes like, there, Rikai. I, I mean, I installed it just so I could do the review, but like, uh, there is nothing here that would even remotely. Really, I, really, I don't, I don't like cinnamon. 
I don't huh. like the. I don't like. Uh, I don't particularly like the fact that it's like this is even. Too I feel like you should save this for when we're recording. Yeah, yeah, I should. I should. That's why I didn't I, say anything. I, it's I, it's interesting. I, I, I had a different opinion, so that'll be good. Oh, I had two technical things I wanted to tell you about that happened to me that were kind of bad that I don't think we could have ever guessed. I fantasized okay. too, although I didn't know you were flying around the nation like a maniac. Like I thought about when you got done with TechSnop on Thursday. I was only once. I was only once. Right, but so there was a point. Like, say you didn't have to fly anywhere. Mm-hmm. There would have been a point where you got done with texting up on Thursday, and you wouldn't have had a show until Sunday. I know. And I know. Rakayo and I were going to drive out and and do that box thing that we were talking about. I, uh, I, 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 so I fantasized about what it would be like to do my job where the only thing I did was do the shows, and I didn't do any of the other job stuff that I do. And man, that was like, wow, I was like super jealous of you. I was like, that... He doesn't have anything to do until Sunday. Like that is like <laughs> I got all like I got all like jelly, and then of course it turned out you were putting fires out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but holy cow, dude, that was uh, man. So that was that was the most action Noah has had yeah. in, in in three days in yeah. a long time. Yeah. Um, two technical things, just real quick before we start the show. But I I don't know how we could have foreseen these. And dude. The first one threw me for a loop like nothing. I've already told the story, I think, on Tech Talk today. But, um, so I'm driving down the road. And you're only in studio for one day, and I'm driving down the road. And a Thursday was one of the days we were doing one of our long hauls because we're trying to make it back by Saturday. And uh, so that was the day we were burning through a lot of podcasts. You go through podcasts quick in, a, like, an eight-hour uh, drive. And I'm driving down the road, and... It's hard to even take, so the RV has no return to center steering. So like you drive like an old 1950s car, you drive like this all the time. Yeah. Which means mm -hmm. you don't, you can take one hand off the wheel and kind of like, you know, but it's really hard. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm driving and I have the phone over by me. So Hadia can't even, you know, mess with it for me like she normally would. Because I, I was trying to move it around a new position. I'm driving along and my podcast stops playing. I look at my watch. I accidentally bumped my watch. Didn't hit pause there. No, my watch is still asleep. So I hit play. It starts playing. You know, the playback countdown starts, but I don't hear any audio. I pull down my notifications tray, and I see Pocket Cast with his play controls and the podcast I'm listening to indicating that it's playing, and I see Spotify, and I see Spotify is playing, but I don't hear any music, so I pause Spotify. I start and restart Pocket Cast. Okay, now I hear Pocket Cast, and I start driving again. And I'm driving. And the podcast pauses. I pull down the notification tray. It still shows that the Pocket Cast is playing, but now it also shows the Spotify is playing. So I pause Spotify. I launch. I, I, I bring up the uh, you know the application switcher. I, I force close uh, Spotify, and I quit, uh, force close Pocket Cast, relaunch Pocket Cast, play it, listen to my podcast, I'm driving down the road. And my podcast stops. And I'm like, what is going on? And I realize what's happening is the cloud has connected all of my Spotify devices. And you must have been like on the pre-show or something trying to play music in Spotify. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was launching Spotify on my Android device. And even though I wasn't listening to the audio on my Android device, for whatever stupid reason, it was killing all my audio on my Android device. And when it would play in here. And uh, it took me a couple <laughs> seconds to realize what was going on. And so then I was like, oh, now I'm probably, I'm probably messing Noah up. So then I was just like, well, I just won't listen to podcasts no. for a while. <laughs> no, no, it, did, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't mess anything up. It just and, and it, no, but that—that's hilarious. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, I thought maybe when I, I paused it, I might have stopped it on your side because it's like a universal remote thing. Oh, is it? Yeah. 
But uh, so there was that one, which isn't, you know, I mean, that was like, Ellen, I, really, Ellen really likes it when I play music anyway. So I couldn't, I couldn't figure uh, like what was going on at first. Like, I'm like, what is going on? And then the other one that, that was sort of mildly like, oh yeah, that's obvious. You see, I normally initiate the hangout session with you. Right. But apparently, I think you initiated it this direction, like to the studio. And so Hangouts is running like, ringing like a son of a bitch on my phone for like 15 <laughs> minutes. I'm getting like a Hangout call. Oh my God. And so, I was so tempted to answer, be like, what's up? But I didn't. So I, I figured so you guys were troubleshooting or something. Uh, if it was the first Sunday, <laughs> you would have probably got next live and then hung up on. But the, uh, but the, uh, the, the, I think it was that Sunday, or maybe it was the other one. Maybe it was, just, no, it was that Sunday. I, I sent a link to Wes. And it was it was supposed to come up in the Hangouts window, and he's like, "It's not coming up." So I pasted it again, and then I just got mad, and I was like, "Control V, Control V, Control V, Control V." And there's and then when I got done, I looked, and there was like forty of them. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, "Geez, I wonder if that sent notifications to his phone." 